Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. It's the final show of the year. Well, what a year it's been. I simply cannot believe I've had the privilege to speak to such incredible guests, international guests such as Naomi Wolf, Katie Hopkins, Professor Peter Bogosian, Helen's Joyce and Pluckrose, Gad Sad, just to name a few. All their replays can be found on my Counterculture Replay page, easily accessible with our RCR app. Today I'm delighted to see the year out with some of my most interesting guests yet. First up, I catch up with Gilda Kirkpatrick. She is so much more than a real housewife of Auckland. She's sharp, frank, and has a deep passion for New Zealand after moving here from Iran in her teens. Following on from Gilda, as I mentioned last week, I have Jeffrey A. Tucker, Brownstone Institute founder and economist. Jeffrey is one of the leading thinkers and commentators to have come to the fore in recent years and was one of the few who saw straight through the COVID propaganda, spoke clear and succinctly about its dangers, both ideologically and economically. This will be a conversation you will not want to miss. Marty, of course, will be back with Media Matters and we'll talk about how things are progressing in the halls of power and our thoughts on 2023. We'll also take one last visit down to Kiwi Farm for the year. It's a Christmas party season and we'll see who got up to what with the Kiwi Farm festive bash. It is Christmas time on Kiwi Farm. The Bahutakawa are in full flower and the sheep decided to throw a party. As the sheep partied late into the night, many drowning their sorrows at the prospect of the rationing of feed. But no matter, Winky had put on plenty of drinks and feed for one last big bash to see the year out. 
With all the bleating, laughter and tipsy-turvy behaviour, one couldn't help look over to the dark corner of the room to see a faint glow of what looked like many red eyes peering at the festivities. On closer inspection, a pungent aroma could be smelt. It appeared the free-range pigs in the kunikuni were self-medicating again, having harvested electric puha especially for the occasion. They looked on at Squealer Robertson and Chippy Paul with steely glares. At both pigs under the influence of a little too much fermented grape juice as they swayed and staggered in what some would call dancing, if intoxication was at a requisite level. Both the free rangers and the kunikunis felt cheated after the election. Their popularity had grown markedly, and yet here they were in the political wilderness. As the puha got passed around, you could see that they were looking for someone to blame. With the sounds of the party in the distance, three animals could be seen at the back of the barn, taking in some respite from the festive din. Winky Lux was there with his lemonade. No mind-altering beverages for this pure porcine. Davy Piglet with a rather large pink gin, and Winnie Ben with a cigar and scotch. Well, lads, said Winky, we've pulled it off. Something the bloody sheep said wasn't possible. Cheers to our partnership and the hard work you've all put in over the last few weeks, says Winky. Agreed, chimed in Davy. I can't wait until next year. Oh, so much to put right. This is only the beginning, Winky. It's only the beginning, enthused Davy. Winnie Ben looked on, took a long drag on a cigar before stamping it out with his hoof then a relaxed, unhurried pull on his fine single malt scotch. Winnie knew that the new year would be here before they all knew it, and he was content to take this quiet moment and reflect. Just as he did, the faint sounds of a carol service could be heard from upon the hill above Kiwi Farm, and it made the old donkey smile. It was his favourite Christmas song, and he listened quietly to the beautiful voices of the farm's next generation. And with that, when he looked at Winky and Davy and smiled, he said, OK, boys, I'll see you all next year. I'm off up north. And with no fanfare of us, the old donkey swished his tail and trotted away, with the knowledge that the new year will be upon us all before we knew it, and he wasn't going to waste one minute longer with all the bull of the central farmyard. Kiwi Farm too will be taking a break, but fear not, it will be back, with love in the air on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone, from everybody here on Kiwi Farm. And remember, Kiwi Farm is available exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening 
and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio and welcome back to Reality Check Radio. Gilda Kirkpatrick, more than just a real housewife of Auckland, she is so, so much more than that. Good morning, Gilda. How are you? Good morning. Uh, I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I've been looking forward to having you on. In fact, you were on my list and that's when I found out that Cam had snapped you first. So I had to, I thought I would wait and I was I was really excited to have you because your story is fascinating and I really encourage listeners, if you have not listened to the interview that Cam did on The Crunch with Gilda way back when he first started with The Crunch, it is Excellent. It talks about your life um, coming to New Zealand. Just give us, for the listeners that listen to this show, just give them an idea of uh, your early life coming from Iran to New Zealand as a teenager with your sister. Um, Sure. Well, I come from Iran, Tehran, um, and I came here about 33 years ago. So I was 16 when I came to New Zealand. I just finished high school and... uh, I'm 16 going to 17. I just had finished high school and my sister and I came to New Zealand because Iran at that point uh, was already very in very sort of um, terrible situation, especially for women. But, you know, we were younger. My sister already had been overseas studying, but I was younger. And then by the time you come to teenagehood, the reality hits because you then are, you know, you become qualified to be under prosecution, uh, you know, everything that goes with the Islamic rules. And it no longer was a place that we kind of felt safe. To be fair, like I grew up in war, so it wasn't like any time that I felt safe after the Islamic revolution, but in a legal manner, it it became kind of intolerable what we went through in that short span of time uh, for me as a 15 year old turning 16 and uh, so anyhow we uh, came to New Zealand and we've been here since both of us we came here we worked we studied we both have studied architecture she's just got her master's I just got my degree and um, for the past so I worked in advertising for 15 years, but but since the COVID hit, I really have kind of, I really didn't work because I had my own agency. I kind of was busy, you know, homeschooling the kids during all the lockdowns, etc. And um, somehow I just didn't really get back into it. I don't know. I I suppose it was one of the side effects of being um, under mandates, especially as an unvaccinated person and the lockdowns where I kind of never really got myself back together in terms of, you know, um, having that drive to get away every morning, work all night, all morning. And to be fair, you know, I missed, the, you know, when my kids were young, uh, I had living nannies and I missed on their progress growing up. And while I, because um, I was at work all the time, and then, you know, when I had the opportunity during lockdown to spend time with my kids and, you know, help them with their schooling, I just felt like, you know, I need to spend more time with these kids. Mm-hmm. That is my priority at this point. How old are the children now? 10 and 8. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, as much as things were restrictive, that's a gift, isn't it? You know, to be able to have that time when you haven't had it before. Yeah, it, it kind of like put a compulsory pulse on. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the funny things that I, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, the lockdowns. A lot of people got affected very negatively. People committed suicide. They they became depressed. Um, you know, a lot of people went off the wheel. They drank too much. They used drugs. They put on weight. You know, you know, it had a, a lot of issues that it brought with itself. But in another hand, um, I think it was awakening uh, for a lot of people politically. And also in terms of, you know, you know, getting back to their hum- humanity mm. uh, and not thinking about consumerism, not thinking about, um, you know, just buying and keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, their usual sort of um, habits of just spend, going out, buying, shopping, you know, shop, you know, therapy by just spending money, go work hard and then go and spend all your money. It put people in a position where they had to rethink their life. Well, they had an opportunity for once to evaluate their values, their path. And as you have noticed, a lot of people, like before in New Zealand, nobody gave a damn about politics. People didn't know much about geography. Like I, I've been here for 33 years and only in the past couple of years I have noticed that people know what's going on internationally they've gone and educated themselves they've developed interest in politics they've developed interest in you know geopolitics etc and it it goes the same way with you know the way they handle their children or their household or um, so as much as it had negative effects i think the moment you give a human being a break naturally they will start thinking and looking for reasons and solutions and um that's a positive thing to me whenever you start questioning and re-evaluating your life it's a positive thing and although it was a terrible thing but it had some unexpected unexpected side effects yeah and i mean you've touched on that with like so you've touched on lockdowns you've touched on politics do you think Kiwis, and I mean, you've been here, as you said, 33 years. Do you think Kiwis have actually taken their freedom and democracy for granted? Today or before that? Well, just even, um, well, particularly during the lockdowns, I know from my perspective, I was appalled at how readily people complied, how readily they gave up freedom as if it was the most natural thing in the world to do. Yes, it was very concerning. And to answer your questions, yes, I think I I believe that. I believe that, you know, it's like, you know, that saying, you know, once bitten, twi- twice shy. If you don't have experience, you know, it's like there's naive people who go to Piha, right, a surfing beach. The waves are crazy. The currents change all the time. It is not it's not a lagoon, mm. you know, you don't go there swimming, thinking, oh, it's just a sea, I'll go swim and come back. Any second, it can change and it can drown. And that's why we have so many people dying at Piha, because people underestimate the power of the sea. They are not experienced with it. But if you are in a sea 
one time or as a child or whatever and you experience the power of that current you it it it, it gets into every uh, molecule of your existence you don't forget that experience and you develop a respect for the sea and you never ever uh, would go and just jump in without understanding what the nature of that patch of beaches or waves are so New Kiwis haven't had that exposure. They haven't really been in a, in a volatile situation. For example, like Middle East, just as an example, it's many places. It's in Africa, it's uh, parts of Europe, and you know, lots of places have got you know political or you know just unrest issues, etc. South America, but New Zealand has always been very. It's just been ticking along. It hasn't really affected New Zealand as such. So I don't think anybody really developed any interest to go further and educate themselves about what it means to have this freedom, to be able to walk up to your politicians and just speak to them or to, uh, you know, it's a very simplified little country. It's vast, it's big, but we have 5 million people as a population five point something now um you know when you compare this to other parts of the world you know this is one neighborhood of a city in a country in a lot of countries in this world um so i don't think people realize or even thought about the idea of freedom you know, they had this blind trust in the government and, you know, they never were in that position to even think any further than that. But now they know because they've gone through the changes. They experienced what it means to overnight lose every control over your, you know, um, individuality, over your rights, your freedom as, as a human being. And they now understand what it means to be under a dictatorship, uh, sort of, okay, well, you know, the labor, Jacinda Ardern had her thoughts. That was her, you know, way of dealing with the situation where um, she believed that that was the right thing to do. It may have not been the right thing. It probably wasn't the right thing. Like we are now understanding it probably wasn't, but she showcased how easy it was to just take over your life and everything with it overnight. Yeah, it, it, it's, it just, it still stuns me today how, how quickly people complied. So what was the motivation then? So when, because you quite famously went down to the protests in Wellington and you, yeah, and you spent a lot of time using your social media to get that word out. And that was really at a time that if you hadn't been vaccinated, especially, that you were demonised. And what was firstly your big motivation to go to Wellington to the protest? And what were the things that you learned once you got there in terms of your experiences when you were there? I planned to go. Uh, however, I had like my kids and I had uh, responsible. Like I couldn't just pack up and go immediately. I went there three days after. I think it was, yeah, three days the fourth day I was there, I think, and I stayed for the duration. I think what pushed me, I was going to go, but I didn't have a set. I was like, oh, I'll go next week. You know, I wasn't in a hurry. I was like, I'll get there because I had so much other shit going on. 
But then when I watched how our MPs were addressing our people, and I, when I watched the media and how they were referring to these people that were our everyday citizens, our everyday taxpayers, our everyday people, with the most disgusting language, addressing them, saying they're just a bunch of smelly hippies, they're fringe people, they're this, like, they treated, like, the way they spoke about these people, it was like, um, I don't think, like, I just, I remember sitting there watching this, and I had these tears run down, and I was like, you guys i'm going there in two days time and i said like i'm coming down in two days anybody needs anything i'll bring it down i think uh, the behavior media and the um you know mps in the parliament uh, really pushed me to go down and stand up because these aren't fringe happy smelly people these are every one of us and you know i thought well i'm well known most of my life I've been talked about, people know me, I'm not considered a smelly fringe hippie. So I'm going to go down and make sure that a whole bunch of my friends will come down to showcase that this is wrong. This is us New Zealanders who have an opinion and we are going to stand up for it. And you can't label us, you can't uh, put us in a corner by, you know, just ignoring. No, this is all walks of life. And I said that I was going and I remember um, Jason and a whole bunch of other people started because at the time, like I remember the squadron, some of the members were who were in the racing teams were unvaccinated. So they had, because of the two meter rule, they couldn't race on the yachts with the other guys who were vaccinated. So they had to have their own team and their own, you know, and they, some of them came down and I had all these friends who were um, like, Anne came down lately mm -hmm. uh, that you spoke to. I had some other friends who own, um, you know, they employed hundreds of people. They extremely, you know, productive members of society. They are movers and shakers. Uh, of economy, they came down uh, and all of a sudden it was like the taboo was gone. It wasn't like, you know, the lie was uncovered. That was my mission at the time to make sure that our people are in stepped on by our politicians and by the media because it was extremely unfair and disgusting. Yeah, oh, it, it was truly appalling. And how does it, how has the reaction been now? So, I mean, it's been, you know, almost two, it'll be two years soon since the protest. How was the reaction amongst uh, your social media followers, but also to the people that you interacted with in Auckland, whether it be via the agency or through your children? Did they, were they aware of your position on this before you'd gone to Wellington? And did they, did they treat you any differently or did they actually wake up and finally actually ask some questions as opposed to just blindly complying? I was extremely vocal on Twitter. I don't really use Instagram or Facebook. I hardly ever use Facebook. I use Instagram as kind of like a children's digital album, <laughs> like pictures, because you know? I can go to their hashtags and find their pictures quickly if I want to show something some, somewhere. So I don't use those two platforms, but I, I've always been extremely vocal on Twitter. Before that, before just 
before labor getting like i've always been very um frank about my thoughts and um you know ideas uh, and i'm not shy you don't like it you you can't fuck off you know it's you know as a i left one of the most beautiful countries in the world where i was born in and i came from and i came here gave up all everything there you know family history everything that i love to be free and this is a free country <laughs> and hell has to you know turn freezing cold what's that expression they say before i'm going to shut up and not use this freedom to speak my mind so you know that that's where i stand you don't like it deal mm. with it so when you spoke out did you find that there were more people actually that had those feelings like you did yeah, were too yeah. scared so, to say something but then were yeah, able to i say. remember very clearly like, so when i said i was going down and i put you know a lot of people are on twitter but they are not there with their own names and they don't necessarily will come and tell you what their idea is i i had people who uh, contacted me from china they were stuck there and uh, they were like oh my god you're going to wellington or you are in wellington can we send you money how can we help and i was on the ground with people and at that point really there was not much uh, there was no need for money i sort of gave some for everyday stuff but also somebody deposited like 5k i think to my account to give it to people also for whatever you know reason they needed and I had a lot of like, can we financially help? And I was like, well, I'm on the ground. There's nothing that finance can help at this point. But when I remember when I came back and I was like, oh, well, people can think whatever they like. And that's just me. I'm extremely open and honest about, you know, and uh, my friends, every, everyone knew I was on vaccinated when my family were. And when I came back, we had this little gathering in the house and there were some very uh, sort of prominent people that were coming from all different sort of sectors of society. And I told uh, James, uh, oh God, do you think they're going to be like funny, you know, about me going to the protest? And they came in and every single one of them thanked me and they were like, oh my God, thank you. It turns out half of them weren't vaccinated, you know, but they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to the public to kind of understand their situation or position because of the stigma that it had with it. Um, I mean, for God's sake, me and my family and kids have been vaccinated for every vaccine in this world. We just didn't take the COVID jab. And all of a sudden, people go and like change my wiki to anti-vaxxer, all kinds of things. But these people came and they all were so lovely and complimentary and, you know, thanked me. And, I, and, I, and, and after that, you know, every person that I came across with, they were, you know, they told me, oh, you know, you did a great job. And it just turns out that, you know, we, we don't talk to each other because we are scared or worried. But when somebody does something, everybody else seems to come and acknowledge it. And um, I think um, they appreciate for people who can stand up and talk for them because they probably have a position job-wise or whatever, the, you know, very prominent people that they don't need that extra luggage in their life for people to come and troll them or they work to label them. So yeah, it was, it was great and I still today, I'm getting like, I went to a charity auction and this Chinese man 
he walked up to me and he was very successful man he said oh my god thank you thank you for you know i was like and it, it was their issue wasn't about jab it was mandate you know i was there because it was anti-mandate but jab had its own situation but like all these people stuck overseas and like the mess that the government made with the you know waiting list and all that like the international response was something that i was very surprised about yeah so you mentioned gatherings at the house. So let's talk about some of those. You had a number of them heading into the election that were very well attended. I spoke to a friend who, who went to one. And so what was your motivation behind that? Well, just talking to friends and different people, I felt that the trust in the media was gone. People just don't trust media. Anything media says, the mainstream media, they will look the other way. They're like, oh, God, because the media did let people down, the mainstream media. And it, it was quite hard, their the representation of the opposition to Labour or the left wing was quite severe. And I and people were confused because we had so many right parties, right? They were like, oh, a bunch of little parties parties and then we had national party as the main party and then we had ACT and then we had New Zealand first. I know this, you know, and I, I follow these people and, you know, I, I, I'm privileged enough time-wise to spend a lot of my free time to read, comprehend, listen, understand. Many people I'm working very hard. They've got kids. They don't have that extra time to find out for themselves. I was talking to everybody was asking me, who are you going to vote? Who are you going to vote? And I felt that they needed to make up their own mind. It's not my place to tell anybody who to vote for, you know, as a responsible citizen, I suppose, all I can do with the access to these people that I have, because I've known them for years or, you know, um, I could provide a platform, uh, you know, one-to-one basis. Each time we had about 150, 170 or maybe more people that attended to come there. Don't talk about media. Don't worry about the media. You ask your question. You make your decision, you know, take interest in the future of your children. Make uh, informed decisions. Don't just ask me, oh, who should I vote for? You vote for who you think. And um, the first one was David Seymour. I've known him. I've worked with him. You know, so many people attended and they asked questions and a lot of people voted for him because they were like, okay, this is our guy. And a lot of people had questions about the way he was handling their questions. Mm. And then um, it was Winston Peters because I personally really resonated with his party, people who work with Enzo First and also himself and the message he was sending out. I really understood what he was trying to do. And there was a lot of negativity about Winston Peters because of what happened with uh, the Labour Party. And I didn't vote for him then. I voted national, national. I've always voted the national, uh, except when I was a student where I voted Labour three years in a row. Uh, which was Helen Clark time, you know, I was happy oh, with my vote. Don't worry, darling. I, I used to live in Mount Albert electorate, so I've been there, done that. And I voted Greens because I truly believed in the environmentalist movement. I still mm. do. However, the Greens today, to me, don't pre- represent anything to do about 
New Zealand environment, the only environmental thing they have is what, you know, the international standard is. And the rest of it is absolutely something that I don't resonate and will never vote for if they carry on the way they do. But, you know, in some, like I did really, really, uh, you know, I thought that was, he took this stand and he got knocked down so many times by the media that I felt like it was my obligation to give him a platform and invite, I don't know, a couple of hundred people to come and hear and question him and stop repeating what the media says, stop repeating all this hatred towards him because of what happened with labor. You know, he had the best intention, but unfortunately, you know, the situation wasn't exactly where he had control over. So he came and a lot of people then, of course, changed their minds. And then we had the national thing, you know, all their, you know, sort of uh, female MPs came along and there was a big crowd. And um, I think these three parties were the parties that I personally would have endorsed myself. And I felt that people, uh, but I would never tell anybody to vote for whom, but I felt that people, uh, you know, it's my duty to give them that honest platform because I felt that the media was failing them. Yeah. And so now we've got the coalition. Honeymoon period uh, doesn't seem, they didn't seem to get a honeymoon period like uh, our Jacinda did. Um, what have been your thoughts since the coalition has been formed and in the last, the shenanigans of the last couple of weeks? Well, honeymoon period is only an illusion that sort of comes to reality, to existence by the media. So the media never gave them that opportunity. It's just how it is, you know. Um, from before the election until now, they've been war with main, at war with mainstream media. And I've said it, you know, I think a couple of times that it reminds me so much of the situation with Trump, you know, where it was all jokes and knocking down like they did with Winston, with his age, with everything, with Luxon, with his hair, whatever, anything, but the reality of what they were offering to our citizens. Um, they did exactly the same thing with, you know, Trump, because I was watching it like a Hulk at the time. And after the election, the whole thing went onto a full sort of, you know, frenzy. Uh, of making fun, belittling, sort of disrespecting anything to do personally with Trump than any of his policies or any achievement that he managed to do during his time in office. And he achieved a lot. I know as a you know Middle Eastern person, somebody who comes from Iran, what Trump brought to the table and what he achieved during that short time of three years, despite the whole left machine being against him. The same exactly scenario is happening in New Zealand right now with our mainstream media. And, you know, we rely on people like you guys and the platform and this independent, you know, establishments to combat what the mainstream media is doing. And I think having, you know, Twitter under Elon's, you know, management, has been great because voices like yours uh, managed to get more traction and attention and you guys have managed to reach 
more people than it would have been possible during the time where Twitter was absolutely another arm of the left brigade. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so now, because now that the election is over, I mean, I, what you did really, in a way, was surprisingly old-fashioned. It was actually taking the politics and the power directly back to the people, wasn't it? What are your sort of thoughts now moving forward? I mean, once we get through the holidays and you kick back with the kids and stuff, I mean, moving forward into 2024, what sort of advocacy work do you think that you'll continue to do in this space, if any? Well, I will just make sure pretty much by any means to make sure that people don't lose interest and don't get too comfortable just because we've got our coalition. It doesn't mean that we can just all back off and sit there and just get on with our ordinary everyday life. We, they need every single one of us to back them up and call out when, you know, the opposition or the media does something wrong and also to call out when they do something wrong and when they are not fulfilling their promises and when they are uh, failing to adhere to what they have sold to their voters, to the taxpayers. I think the time for being idle and passive is completely gone. We are in a dire situation where every single day is a battle with the media and with the politician, whether the people that we chose or the opposition. So uh, yes, we casted our vote. We have representatives, but at the end of the day, it is our responsibility to make sure those representatives are doing their job and the media is being held responsible for um, their lack of uh, integrity. Uh, because it is so easy to turn back and say, oh, it's misinformation, it's disinformation, where they are the biggest source of mess and disinformation. You know, when you go back and look at, you know, the information and the promotion that came out of our mainstream media about a product that was bought by the taxpayers' money, which was the vaccine, which promised that it was for the safety of elderly, uh, autoimmune disease people, immune compromised people, which included the cancer patients, uh, a whole kind of promises that this vaccine, you have to take it because you will protect these people, right? They said that. The prime minister said it, you won't die if you take it, you won't get sick, and, and then people took it, they got the COVID, they transmitted the COVID, they died of it, they got side effects. Um, and so in any normal establishment, a company or whatever, if you buy a faulty product, you will hold the person who sold it to you responsible. You claim back your money. It is the consumer's right to do that. So why have we not been able to do that? It was our money that went to buy to a, a faulty product. And then I hear it's very disappointing. I love uh, Sean Plunkett. I think he's doing a great job. And I feel like the platform is uh, doing an absolutely amazing job. But I, when I hear or see Sean writing or hear him saying, oh, well, a bunch of elderly died. And uh, it's like, yeah, they took the vaccine that was supposed to keep them alive, and they died. Mm-hmm. They died of COVID. How can you justify that? Just yeah, because so it's, it is certainly has one big blind spot. Yeah, and I understand he's quite emotional. Like he's trying to take responsibility, and I understand about his health 
and you know he's like i'm the responsible person and i you know i did wrong things so i ended up in this position where i've got uh, but okay you did that fine you can take that on your shoulders your shoulders are broad enough but what about all these other people give them one percent one chance one opportunity to at least have a platform to stress their concerns i'm not vaccinated my family or not a whole bunch of my friends aren't none of us have really got covered none of us have died we haven't got any side effects we don't have any disease we don't have long COVID. We have we have none of that but then again i've got a whole bunch of vaccinated friends who are continuously telling me oh my god i've got this i've got that the fucking vaccine i took you know it's these people i've known for decades They've never talked to me about their health concerns. They've never had issues. They've been as healthy as ox. Why all of a sudden do you think a whole bunch of healthy people all my life that I've known them all of a sudden are coming out and are upset about like their health status and are facing major issues and, you know, maybe listen to them. This is like upset to me. It's kind of like it was the same with vaccine. It it was like a religious belief, you know, Mm. Science is not religion. Science is, if anything, is the opposite side of religion. Because if you look at religion, it's about absolution. You either believe in God or you don't. And if you believe in God, you believe in everything that God says. Now, there are people who've gone and manipulated it and changed it around because the time has changed and they're like, okay, this is not selling anymore. This absolution is not selling anymore. So they're like, oh, okay, where the inter... I can never pronounce this word. Interpretation. Yes, that, you know, they've taken that and they're like, okay, this is the new way we address these old rules that were absolute rules. But, oh, there's a twist to it. So the time has passed and we now look at it in this way. That's why there are a bunch of churches out there who are like, oh, no, it's okay to be gay and we marry marry you and blah, blah, blah. We're in the original version. It is absolutely not acceptable. You know, it's the same with Islam. You know, it's absolute. It, it It's either there or it's not. You can't change it around because you like to. And the actual practicing Islam that is happening in many countries in this world follows that absolution because that's what religion used to be. Catholicism was the, like, like Catholics and like they were the same. You know, they used to burn people if they didn't believe in the idea of Catholicism or, you know, but today, you know, the time has passed of so Christianity and Judaism, you know, they're old religions. They've kind of evolved and they've changed and they've become more modern. But that doesn't mean it's the same religion as it came out and it used to be, that absolution of it. Mm. Uh, and science was always against opposite to the religion because it was about the experiment, it was about finding out, it was about nothing is absolute, everything is to be considered, researched, found out. And today, you know, with this COVID situation, they've changed roles. You know, we used to be able to be like, okay, you go to a doctor, they say, oh, you have to have a back surgery or you have this cancer and you're going to do this treatment. You're like, okay, thank you, but I'm going to go and get a second opinion. You go to a different doctor and get a different opinion. You would go to four doctors and get, you know, and then you would estimate which ones are more to your sort of belief and you would go with that. What happened with COVID, that objectivity of science 
And the idea of inquisitiveness and questioning and experimenting with science was thrown away by Jacinda Ardern's regime. It was like, either you're with us or you're against us. Either you believe in this, this is the, this is the absolute religion that you have to believe in, or you're put aside, or you're a psychopath, or you're labeled some lunatic. And the society, uh, of course, you know, we are used to religion from thousands of years ago. That mentality is embedded in every single person. It was easy for them to go with the religious path of believing and then castigating anybody on, you know, witch burning anybody that questioned the absolution of this new religion of the jab and the COVID, you know, measures. And I think actually even wokeism too, all those cultural is all part of it. It's all wrapped up in the same doctrine and dogma. Yes, it's become a religion. You know, the, you know that there is no place for questioning the gender ideology. There is no place for ever questioning something that is emotional comes from somebody's brain that I feel like this today and I may change my feeling tomorrow. So none of us are, we are all labeled, we lose jobs, we are cancelled. If we question it, why? You know, it, it's since when you, you put religion aside because it didn't tolerate your ideas and your different way of thinking and your different path of life. You parked religion aside, you changed religion to match your questionings. And now you are asking everybody else to, you know, treat your ideologies like a religion. That is stupid. Mm. It is walking back. It's going back. It's going back to dark ages. You, you know, in a day and age where we should and must ask and find out and allow people to experience, you know, you do that. But don't ask me to treat your path as the only path. Mm. Well, and that's just that they're creating a whole new, I mean, you're right, it's like the dark ages. We're like the new heretics, but here we are. And you just have to create sort of other parallel societies, and I think that that's what we're all doing now. So one final question before we head off. Um, what brings you joy? What is something heading into the festive season that makes you happy? <laughs> I get very happy and very sad every day about the most basic things of life, like, you know, I watch my pets, I watch my kids, I watch other kids, I watch people being happy, you know, I look at social media, people post something interesting that has made them happy. That makes me happy to see hope in people. That has made me really, really happy this season to uh, talk to people and see them being hopeful for a change, for freedom of thought and speech. And for the fact that we have been promised many great things by the people we've elected, uh, that makes me very happy. Now, if they deliver, that's a whole different question. I get happy with very basic things and uh, I also get sad with very basic things. The other day I rescued a bird, baby bird, and it died. And for two days I just cried. I was very sad. <laughs> you know, so my sadness and happiness are very much based on very, very basic everyday things. They are not grandeur of thoughts. <laughs> um, that, you know, I, I'm not that, that kind of a grand person that, you know, big things make me happy or sad. I, I get affected on a daily basis. 
So it's like that old saying, take time to smell the roses, because sometimes it's the simple, small things that will make you happy. Absolutely. I, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, I, I see news about baby ruthless empire that like sticks with me for weeks and I can't shake it off. You know, that that's in my sad category folder in my head. I continuously think about what we can do, what can we do, what can we do, what can we demand to make the situation better. And then I see, for example, my friend's head recovering from cancer and that makes me really happy. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I believe in our <laughs> vets and the system and the way they treat animals and they take them seriously. And so, yeah, it, it comes as big and crazy as a human life, a child, the most amazing thing that our existence for the future depends on to the most basic thing as, you know, a pet. So, mm. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Hey, look, Gilda, thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. This has been Gilda Kirkpatrick here on Counterculture. Um, it's been great to chat to you. And as I mentioned before, do make sure you listen to Gilda's first interview with Cam Slater on The Crunch. It was fantastic. We will uh, make sure if you if you can't find it, it is on the replays in the app. So do go and look that up. And I do follow you on Twitter. You are a little sparky demon on Twitter, I have to say. What's your um twiddle hit um well x now isn't it what's your handle on x well um, well if you go good luck here patrick twitter you'll find it but it's strange you know underscore g underscore but if g. you google it good luck here patrick twitter you'll find it i i make a lot of terrible grammar and spelling mistake or like too much on my phone i never check when i post so it's terrible like don't follow me if <laughs> my my posts are very bad but um then again i i'm very honest and you know i'm not there to gain praises i'm just there to discuss and try to you know make sure that people pay attention to what's important no, you most certainly do that. Look, this has been Gilda Kirkpatrick here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. If you've got any questions about what Gilda has had to say um, or you've got any feedback for us, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Thanks, Gilda. Thank you so much, Lane. Thanks for having me on your show. You're most welcome. Welcome back to Counterculture, and if you've ever visited my Napier store at this time of year, you'll often find me wearing my favourite Christmas t-shirt, one with a festive sheep captioned, Feliz Navidad, perfectly apropos for a yarn store, don't you think? Jeffrey A. Tucker is coming up very shortly, and remember, summer is a great time for you to catch up on all the content you've missed while we've been taking this break. Whether you listen live or download our replays for your summer Kiwi road trip, the app is available at the Play Store for Android or the App Store for iOS or Apple. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio members and join now. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. He's also a senior economics columnist for the Epic Times, author of 10 books, including Liberty or Lockdown, and thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press. He speaks widely on topics of economics, technology, social philosophy, and culture. Jeffrey A. Tucker, welcome to Counterculture. How are you? That's very nice to be here. Thank you. It's very nice to have you. 
The Western social fabric in its current state, is it terminal or do you think it can be revived and saved? Everything can be revived in some way. There's nothing about the logic of history that is, uh, creates inevitabilities. But we're facing immense challenges. And we have now for a better part of uh, four years. Um, that's when the crisis really uh, kicked off, um, precipitated by the COVID lockdowns, of course. But that has created vast distrust in our political institutions, uh, grave skepticism skepticism toward the expert class, not just in one country, but really in all countries. Um, an economic crisis, certainly in, in uh, most of the Commonwealth countries and the United States. <clears throat> and 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 further problems associated with the uh, unwillingness on the part of the ruling class in most of these developed world to admit having done anything wrong at all, and so they and their successors are still in charge, and it's very frustrating for us because we're being tested. Does democracy work, <laughs> or is it a handmaiden of, of the perpetration of tyranny? We just don't really know yet. No, and sometimes with these situations, I find you often need to look backwards in order to look forwards. And recently, you've written in regards to some of the similarities around that um, admission of guilt, as it were, <clears throat> to the Great War and World War One. So talk a little bit more about that. Well, these were, World War One was a great trauma, of course, uh, and and there was a widespread regret on the part of yeah, basically everybody for what happened. I mean, basically the destruction of Europe, the <clears throat> wiping out of the old world in a way that was almost inadvertent, and then introducing this to a world that was uncertain, with vast casualties. Um, and there was such pain associated with it. There was a, a psychological impact of it of um, kind of what you associate with abusive situations, that it's easier just to forget about them. And and move on with your life, and sort of sort of submerge the pain as deeply as possible. Um, but that's not usually the best answer. Actually, we, what we'd really like is some truth and honesty, so we can avoid doing that again, and maybe even achieve a modicum of justice for the perpetrators of what went wrong. But uh, we're nowhere near that, and unfortunately, it's it's it, it's so long as we don't have truth coming out of it. Uh, we're in danger of entrenching all the problems that that afflicted us over the last several years. Mm. And we're just not getting that kind of honesty. Uh, one of the things that shocked me was that I thought that hmm, because so many people in in the commanding heights of power were wrong about what happened uh, during the COVID lockdowns and shop mandates and everything that followed, that there would be a, a widespread uh, rush to admit error uh, because so many people were wrong. Well, I mean, it's been a learning experience for me because, of course, the opposite has been true. I mean, the more widespread the error, the the less likely it is that you're going to get truth and honesty because everybody has a kind of um, a stake in perpetrating the lies. Mm -hmm. And I think Henry Rent spoke to that many years ago, didn't she? Yeah. She does. Yeah, she did. She did. She did speak about this. It's a problem with totalitarianism, the definition of which is not that you have one autocrat controlling the whole, the whole of everything. It what it means is that the whole of everything is profoundly affected by the tyrannical impulse. 
<laughs> That's what totalitarianism means. Now, I'm I'm telling you things I didn't know uh, five years ago. You know, so we've all lived through this kind of learning process where it's been weird because you know we had something like forty years of 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 what we you know in the before times of seeming normalcy. You know where life was somewhat predictable. Yes, there were problems here and problems there, but they seemed fixable and more or less society worked. There seemed to be some relationship between uh, what the politicians did and what the public felt about it. And we seemed to have mechanisms in place that would correct errors gradually. Um, yes, everything seemed more or less functional for the better part of 40 or years or longer for most of us in the West. And then just all at once, everything just you know the the breakage was was apparent to to us, and so none of the things that we thought were true turn out to be true. There isn't a mechanism in place for correcting errors. There isn't a clear relationship between the attitudes on the part of the public and the responsiveness on the part of our public officials. There's a vast gulf that separates the the two. There there isn't a kind of a a, a check in place to hold to account uh, abusive behavior by public officials. The press is not independent. <laughs> that, that's been something we didn't, I'm not sure we knew. I mean, I guess I, I always thought about the mainstream media as biased, but I never thought of them as wholly captured. <laughs> you know, there's really yeah. a difference. Yeah, there is. You mentioned justice before. What does justice look like in this situation? Well, I think um, in this case, um, uh, the most minimal uh, thing would be to expect what is what is the old Aristotelian definition of justice? It's giving to to each uh, what he or she deserves, something like that. And at the very very least, the people who are actively involved in in um, the in the creation and perpetration of the crisis, from the from the lockdowns to the shop mandates to the the payoffs and the you know the big bucks being earned from the stimulus and all the rest of it that they should certainly uh, lose some professional standing and be subject to some kind of public uh, grilling and be discredited for what they did. You know, I mean, at the at the very minimum, I think that's what what we need. I mean, we have to have that. Instead of this opposite, we're getting. The opposite of justice. I mean, every public health journal in the, in the Western world is saying, you know, everything was great. It was wonderful. They're valorizing uh, Jacinda Ardern, who now has Ugh. two two appointments <clears throat> at uh, Harvard, <clears throat> two highly paid appointments at Harvard. You know, after having given the commencement address <clears throat> at Harvard, I think, and being cheered by all the idiot undergraduates, now gets two um, high paid positions there. So. You know, I'm sorry to say that the U.S. is being used as a kind of a sanctuary for people who are fleeing. <laughs> Look, I have to say, Jeffrey, you can keep her. You, we, we don't need her back. <laughs> we're, we wanted to, sh we want to ship her back, but anyway. no, no, that's okay. That's okay. Well, you know, maybe, look, it's our gift. It is our gift to you. <laughs> maybe this is why the why God created the North and South Poles for people like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Indeed. And well, just to give you an example, this is a uh, an excerpt from a news article from one of our leading newspapers last week. And it is quoting the Tefatu Water Chief, which is the head of our um, single governing health body for the entire country. Yeah. Chief Executive Margie Arpa said, the misinformation about vaccines that has been put out in the public arena in relation to our data is completely wrong, she said. The person behind those claims was the data administrator with no clinical knowledge or expertise in vaccines. Vaccination is safe and effective and everyone should keep up to date with their shots and protect themselves, their whānau, which is Māori for family, in their communities. And this is in regards to mm. the senior data analyst, which has leaked uh, data around vaccination locations mm. and mortality following an excess death. So, and I mean, this is just from last week. Yeah. Well, these are just incantations, and we've heard them now for four straight years, and I'm not sure there's a living soul on the planet Earth who believes them. Um, and it really begs the question that if the, these data leaks didn't show anything of any substance, why, why are such uh, extraordinary efforts being being undertaken to 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 apply sort of punitive consequences for, for, the, for the data leak? I mean, if the data is nothing to fear than just release it all you know i mean mm. but but in every country um <clears throat> the vaccine safety data is is being uh kept under wraps so we don't know and then the little bit that we have <clears throat> uh, they're claiming it's not it's not true you know so in the u.s we have i don't know a thousand times the various reports from what's called the various system of vaccine injury as a consequence of these COVID-19 vaccines. And they say, oh, well, those don't matter. Those are not reliable. So anything that goes against the narrative is considered unreliable. <clears throat> Everything else is being hidden. If you want to verify their claims that it's safe and effective, um, there's there's no data uh, that's that 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 actually stands up to scrutiny that seems to underscore mm -hmm. that. So th this is a serious problem. But, you know, there's an even more fundamental problem, namely... Um, the very first condition of a, of any kind of medicine is you don't want to uh, 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 make it available, much less force it on people unless it's necessary. And we knew from February of 2020 that there was an extreme risk gradient associated with contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus that was mostly impacted uh, people near the end of end of life with uh, multiple comorbidities. We knew this for for, for certain uh, by the first and second week of February 2020. And yet the vaccine rollout happened and then uh, then got uh, imposed upon <clears throat> essentially everybody. In the U.S., the FDA has approved it for six months old. Now, this this doesn't make sense for on multiple levels. I mean, one is the shot. Uh, protects against if it does protect against anything for 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 a now deprecated strain and we know that the effectiveness of to the extent that that's true is only two or, two or three months um so so even if the children were vulnerable which they're not uh the uh, they're not even gonna they're gonna by the time they turn one uh the vaccine will have been at best irrelevant to them and actually potentially very dangerous so the idea that would have been approved with with no clinical trials whatsoever, no proof whatsoever. This is purely uh, nothing other than a an industrial uh, plot to find more people to give vaccines to. And in in the U.S. case, the <clears throat> liability against damages for the shots are are uh, 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 most secure when you get 
a vaccine on the so-called childhood schedule. So once it leaves the childhood schedule, then it has to be subject to other forms of immunity that are more vulnerable to legislative deletion. But if it's on the childhood immunity schedule, then it gets permanent immunity from um, from it's permanently indemnified against any liability. So the, the so what they're doing is using children as a sort of guinea pigs in a in a, a big legal experiment. Well, they're, they're they're using them as a, as a human shield, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and disgusting. and we know this, and you know, anybody who looks into this knows this. So if we live in this very strange world where, as you said, the you know the health bureaucracies make these implausible claims that we know are fake. Uh, they know they're fake. Uh, they know that we know they're fake, and so on it goes. But yet we continue to live in this world of let's pretend, and this is not what we imagined democracy to work like. We just, the whole idea of democracy was that we're supposed to have some sort of feedback relationship between uh, the people and the public life of our our governing authorities. I mean, that was the idea. But here we have this vast chasm that looks more like what we believed, how we believed the world worked in, say, the old Soviet Union or uh, other totalitarian uh, societies. And we just never expected that it would happen to us, and yet it did happen to us, and it continues mm. to happen to us. And so, I just don't know how how it breaks. I, I don't know. I don't believe that it's viable. I, I don't believe that we can continue to sustain this this situation. But I just don't know what it looks like to have the current uh, ubiquity of lies uh, fall apart. I'm not. I'm not sure what the consequences are. Mm. And the reason is we have no historical precedent for anything like this. No. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you from an economic perspective is that why did nations, particularly Western nations, throw the economic baby out with the bathwater and not follow basic economic principles within those lockdowns? I mean, we've got a a weight Mm -hmm. of debt now that we are drowning under in this country, and Mm -hmm. we are just one of many. So how did they get it so horribly wrong? Uh, it was extraordinary, and I remember back in those days, um, the the people who were concerned about the economic consequences were completely disregarded, and and kept in the in the basement of the back rooms and the other rooms, and told to shut up. Don't tell me about the stock market. You know, we've got we've got matters of life and death here. Uh, so there was a perception that that we had to take undertake extreme measures, regardless of the consequences. Uh, very short-term minded, for sure, and maniacally focused on one thing, which was kind of sort of pathogenic avoidance, as opposed to everything we've learned about uh, economic cause and effect over 300 years. So <laughs> it was a, 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 a kind of fallacy on, on a mega, mega scale that I, I never thought was uh, possible. I mean, that's generally because I assumed, with especially in the age of the internet, that we lived in an age of sort of information sharing, you know, when there would be knowledge available to everybody and no longer could the ruling class bamboozle uh, people with, with lies and that we would, uh, you know, as, as, as modern people with information available, we were more civilized than the people of the past. And I kind of believed all this stuff. So it was a little strange for me to watch this unfolding 
of of wild myth and maniacal um, single variant thinking. You know, uh, the the tossing out of of everything we knew about human psychology and sociology and economics and everything else just for this one consideration of of pathogenic avoidance the treatment of all human beings as nothing other than disease vectors which happened for for a time that's why the masks and the social distancing regulations and the banning of meetings the closure of churches and businesses which happened in new zealand um in a slightly different way than the u.s in the u.s there's a lot of internal controls i guess new zealand had lots of flash lockdowns but for the most part, stayed, I think, for the most part, was more or less we, open internally. We had an open period between yeah. the first lockdown and the second lockdown. So the first, yeah. um, because we we're a series of islands, it was very, very easy. Yeah. We closed our borders. So one of the mm -hmm. big bones of contention here was the closing of those borders. And we closed right. our borders to our own citizens, which is, mm -hmm. whilst we don't, we're one of only a handful of nations that doesn't have a constitution, that does lie within the face of the legal requirements for any citizen to be able to return home and yeah. the consequences of that are still being far you know far reaching and our lockdowns were brutal they were brutal yeah. and I see. Mm, so the, and, and it was just the level of controls and the mixed messaging and the breaking of articles within our bill of rights with no thought whatsoever to yeah. the consequences of what other people think and the devastation of the tourism industry, of course, which I think mm. is something like five, ten percent of the New Zealand GDP, it all just went, you know, flatlined. Um, you know, an alternative. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever read this. There's an American author named Edgar Allan Poe, and he wrote this book called "The Mask of the Red Death," and it was about a a, a prince, and his name is Prince Prospero. <laughs> and there is a the Red Death, you know, which you can think of as the botic plague came came to town, and he gathered up all of the ruling class elites and got many many cases of wine and enough food to last a very long time, and gathered everybody in the castle, and they hid in there and held parties uh, for I don't know how long it went on, but let's just say it was three months, six months, something like that, and then. Um, once it was clear that the pathogen had, that the plague had passed, uh, they held one final uh, ball, and at the ball there was an unusual visitor, and that unusual visitor, you know, was dressed in red, and and uh, you can imagine that that the guy represented the plague, and then and then everybody in the castle died. So that was the story, and when. Uh, New Zealand closed, I thought, well, this is just like Edgar Allan Poe's story. <laughs> New Zealand's going into the castle to avoid the pathogen. Everybody in the world can get sick. We're going to stay clean. The, there was always a problem because a New Zealand population needed to develop immunity to the pathogen. I mean, once you close your borders, you have to keep them closed forever, and then you become a primitive tribe, um, immunologically naive, <clears throat> and actually less healthy than ever. So that's a problem. You cannot stay closed forever. At some point, you'd have to open up. I guess the theory was once the vaccine comes along, then we'll be protected and we'll open up. But then the, that didn't work because the vaccine didn't stop infection or, or transmission. So once that was clear, and that became very clear um, pretty early on, actually. Mm -hmm. after very early within, on. Within four or five months after the, the release of the vaccine. So um, 
So it never made sense to close down. You know, an alternative path that New Zealand might have pursued. And, you know, it's easy to kind of look back and game this another way, was that of Mexico. So Mexico um, didn't really have severe lockdowns at all. It was like everything is Mexican culture is like, let's pretend to do one thing, but actually do another. So they pretended to lock, but they never actually locked up. There's no way you can keep Mexicans from going to church and whatever. So they, they went ahead with their lives. But the incredible thing is that they were encouraging immigration from all over the world. So there's one of the few places that Americans could actually go during lockdown. So Americans just flooded into Mexico to get some freedom. Mexico has experienced an enormous rise in, in, uh, in inflow of dollars and prosperity and capital. And now it has vast numbers of, of um, uh, expats living there. And they did it because they pursued a kind of an open policy during COVID. When the rest of the world shut down, Mexico was entirely open. And they've benefited in enormously uh, from an economic point of view. I mean, New Zealand could have done the same thing. Imagine if New Zealand had stayed completely open. Uh, Americans would have been flooding the place. I mean, yeah. and Europeans and yeah, Australians. We did actually have a number of them come here and and they sort of touted how wonderful it was. But when it comes with Jacinda Ardern, one of her famous lines, and she has many, is we like to do things differently down here. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. who does she consult? I mean, certainly not the voters and certainly not the actual science. It looked to me like she was just seizing power, at yes. least from the U.S. Point of, point of view. That's what it looked like. Uh, it was just a, a crazy woman with a, with a, a problematic personality who was using this as an excuse to exercise totalitarian control and, and openly bragging about how she's created a two, two-class society, you know, some people with rights and some without, depending on whether and to what extent they agreed, uh, obeyed her. And then going as far as to saying, <clears throat> this, it was like a dystopian movie, we are your one source of truth, you know. I mean, it's just, just a level of, mm. of absurdity. It is. Well, then, we've, now, we've now just had a change of government, so we have a yeah. th three-way coalition. So they have now, they've only been sitting in the House for a little over a week, and there is already unrest from those on the other side, because of course they've had it one-way traffic for so long now, for six years. So all of a sudden they are seeing much of their progress about to be undone. My concern is, and I wanted to ask you about this, is do you think not only New Zealand, but other Western nations are actually now standing on the precipice of an economic cliff? Yeah. Uh, um, by the way, let me just tell you something that's mm. very interesting, um, a little bias that all of us developed during the COVID years, is it became very easy for us to look at the errors of other nations and and avoid the errors of our own. So, so poor New Zealand became the object of a great deal of ridicule around the world. Right. <laughs> but, and that's sort of fun. It's fun to go, oh, look at that crazy woman and her, her, her wacky ways. Um, but yeah, there were plenty of more than enough problems. Every nation has its own issues. And uh, we should look more carefully at those. And yes, I definitely, the, the industrialized democratic uh, West in, the, in, in, uh, uh, in developed nations, the US and Commonwealth countries, are uh, are on the precipice of a grave grave crisis. I mean, I don't think there's any question that the U.S. is losing its its empire, um, and and uh, is is definitely peaked in in terms of its um, its ability to sort of muscle uh, people around the world. 
and uh, our growth rates are are flat, flatlined, despite what they tell you. Uh, we are not growing. Uh, um, there's a, no job creation in the U.S. apart from people getting second and third jobs. Um, <clears throat> we're we're in a re- deep recessionary environment, and the same thing is true for a good part of Europe, which is in grave trouble. And then you add on to that, you know, the the COVID lockdowns and the after effects of that with. <clears throat> the refugee crisis in Europe, and then the open borders in the U.S. And, and, and now, so just to be clear, uh, many of us, like me, you know, would favor more immigration to the U.S. I mean, we need vastly more. I mean, God knows we have a talent shortage in this country, and we have a worker shortage in this country. We desperately need immigrants. But the way to run an immigration policy is not just to f- fling open your borders mm. and invite the entire world to sort of rush in. I mean, that's that's what. Meanwhile, um, keeping out um, uh, people from Australia, New Zealand, um, the Far East, and Europe, and for that matter, Canada. So we've got an upside down immigration policy in this country, and it's creating creating tremendous amounts of political anger. And kind of re- revving up nativist um, uh, political impulses in the U.S. too, which is also goes with it. So, no matter how you look at it, it's a grave crisis. Not to mention the debt and the economic problems. Uh, our inflation is not going anywhere. I mean, I think for two years now we've been hearing that inflation is going away. Well, the report just came out this morning. It's once again basically double what the uh, uh, what it's supposed to be according to the targets of the central bank <clears throat> and no respite whatsoever i mean the 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 amount of money creation during the pandemic is unbelievable uh at its peak it reached uh, 26 an increase of 26% per annum uh and that money is still sloshing around and it's profoundly affecting uh the american standard of living so that that the dollar in terms of domestic uh, value of uh, uh, relative goods and services has fallen about 20% in four years. And this morning, the inflation rate minus f- food and energy, which kind of cancel each other out, foods up, energy's down, is still about 4%. Well, 4% over forecast over another four years, I have to do the math, but I'm, I'm looking, we're looking at losing a quarter even as much as a third of value in a, in, in a very short period of time. And what that does to real incomes and living standards um, is devastating for the for the poor, especially, but even for the middle class. And the only people who can survive this are the extremely well-to-do. Mm. We're doing just fine. Well, it appears to me that it's the very, very heady drug of socialism has actually perpetuated its claws into the United States psyche, particularly yeah. with the current government, more than I think they would care to admit. What are your thoughts on yeah. that? <clears throat> uh, cer- certainly that's true. And it's a, it's a, it's a traditionally socialism is has been an ideology associated with the working classes, um, uh, the rights of laborers over capital and so on. That is emphatically not true this time. Uh, socialism is entirely a ruling class ideology born of Ivy League uh, educated uh, or credentialed elites with no real skills, who uh, find themselves in in position positions of of money and power by virtue of their identity, or their credentials, or their privileges. Otherwise, so that's what socialism is in 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 reality. Unfortunately, we have uh, a whole 
kind of professional class in this country that is very much detached from real work and real uh, skills and real uh, achievements in anything. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, America is the laziest country on the planet Earth. I can promise you that. It's unbelievable how lazy everything And And every small businessman I know uh, is complaining they can't get workers. Uh, because and nobody knows how to do anything. And and by the way, this is going to get much worse. You look at the status of young people, you know, who are coming out of two years of of school closures, and Zoom class or whatever. And uh, the educational attainment standards have collapsed. It started off as two years of lost education, but it's extending now. It's three years and four years, so it's getting worse, not better. And these are the people in ten years are going to people are the people who are going to be entering. Uh, college or the workforce, without any knowledge of, of history, even reading basic math, it's unbelievable what we've done. I mean, gosh, I hate to sound so um, pessimistic about things, but I mean, on the current trajectory, you know, we're we're looking at losing um, everything we've associated with what we used to call civilization. Mm. Listen, I can tell you, it is so bad. Um, the crime. Uh, in the U.S. is has become so so everywhere that it's not it's hardly even reported anymore. I was at a store this morning, and by the way, I live in a very nice area. I was at a store this morning, and there's a sign in the door that said "No backpacks." And I said to the um, I said to the merchant, I "said well, How can you allow backpacks?" He goes, "Well, he said there's only one reason for bringing a backpack in here, and that's to stuff it full of things and then run out." He said, I've seen it too much, and so now I'm just banning backpacks. So this is what they do. Just go into the store, stuff it full of things, run out. I said, why don't you call the police? And he said, the police? The police are on their side. He said, they do nothing. They won't do anything. So the police are basically enabling this to happen. He said, why is that? He goes, well, he said, I don't know why it is, but um, <clears throat> they get in trouble probably if they arrest people. So they don't don't arrest, arrest people. They stick to stopping um People on the road who are, who are going over the speed limit because those people tend to comply with the law. But the people who who aren't complying with the law are the people who stuff their backpacks full of goods and run out the door. And this guy is like talking. This is just one store, one guy. But this is the this is the world they live in now. Mm. Petty mm. theft is everywhere. Property rights aren't secure anymore. Mm. So the political winds are starting to change in many places. So Javier Melay, what are your thoughts here with Argentina? Well, I. I'm of course very impressed by by his by his language and his, his rhetoric and um but I I'm not sure how he's going to get from here to there. Uh there seem to be some initial good reports and some less good reports. Uh, uh Argentina on a dollar standard <clears throat> could just make the whole country subject to uh imperial control from from Goldman Sachs, you know, so that's not necessarily an improvement. Um he does seem to have abolished a lot of agencies, but you know you have to be careful of this stuff. Uh, abolish, abolishing agencies is good, but consolidating agency functions in other government agencies is not good. I mean, mm. uh, would you rather have uh, 180 small bureaucracies or one gigantic beastly bureaucracy? I mean, you know, that's not. So we're, we're going to have to wait and see. He's, he faces a lot of challenges. I think there's. I think it's a sincere guy. Uh, my biggest worry is is that um, you know, he claims to be an anarcho-capitalist and a libertarian, for that matter. Um, my worry is that if he doesn't succeed, 
um, that will be blamed on anarcho-capitalist ideology and libertarianism. You know, mm. the, oh, see, that didn't work. More than what they're already blaming it for now. Yeah, that's right. So it's a, it's a it's a problem. I mean, there's many reasons to believe that there's a lot of political instability in the world, and that can be good and it can be bad. And we're just waiting to see which which one turns to which. Um, I'm not optimistic about a Trump second term. I mean, we couldn't forget that it was Trump who actually greenlighted the lockdowns the last time and protected Fauci and has has. Um, you know, calls himself the father of the uh, mRNA vaccines. So uh, this is not exactly the person you want to be head of state a second time around. Um, but do you think he will get the nomination? Um, I would say that some very powerful people in this country want him to get the nomination because they think that once he gets the nomination. <clears throat> then he's going to face a huge range of of uh, uh, legal legal trouble. Well, he faces that now, but it's going to get more serious. And then once he's under, you know, he's convicted in unfriendly courts, then he'll be, you know, awaiting sentencing um, during the presidential campaign, which is going to split the uh, Republican Party. You're going to have grave regrets for having nominated him. And then that's going to provide an opening for um, the Democrats. Biden can easily step aside. And somebody like Newsom from California, who's basically our, our just, just into Ardern, could step into that role. And then with a, a split Republican Party um, and, and, and then um, RFK as a third party candidate, um, taking away uh, other votes, could leave somebody somebody like Newsom to be president. And if that and that if that happens, then the Great Reset will be complete. And I fear for this country's future. Newsom has he indicated that he wants to stand though, or do you think he because he's he's a very shiny but dumb hammer? That's my sort of observation of him. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He seems like the most viable person, and and he'll step up if he has the opportunity. Mm. Um, I mean, he's he's like the CGI candidate. I mean, he's just entirely created by artificial intelligence. I mean, he's just he's not even there's nothing real about the guy, and the guy uh, is a pathological liar too. But he'll step into the role if it comes down to it, um, and I do think that that's part of the plan. Just to put him in that in that position, and then uh, consolidate the gains that they they that they that pharma and the deep state got, and the censorship and everything uh, gained during the COVID lockdowns, to make it a permanent future of American life. And the U.S. Constitution, Bill of Rights, will be gone out the window forever. Mm -hmm. So that's the pessimistic case. Um, you know, uh, an alternative view is that they can't stop Trump. Trump gets to be president. And he surrounds himself with enough good people uh, to actually accomplish something and 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 gut the deep state. You know that's that's the optimistic scenario. I think it's far less likely, unfortunately. But it's always possible. You never know. You never know. Well, I mean, twenty sixteen. I mean, they, you know, so many. They were so convinced of one result, and they got an entirely. Yeah. 
another one. Yep. So that precedent has really already been set that you can't lay, you know, very strong odds on something happening. That's here. true. And but you know the the thing is that since 2016 they've really uh, they've, the deep state actors have gone to great lengths to make sure they have a greater degree of control over the voting voting system in this country. So there's a real tug of war in this country over things like absentee ballots, which, you know, which was what killed Trump in 2020, and uh, counting systems and that sort of thing. But, you know, whether we 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 have fair elections in this country, we, we don't really know. Um, uh, 2022 had a lot of anomalies. Um, so, and I know that a lot of people are hard at work to make sure that doesn't happen again. But uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. You know? Well, that's all part of that social contract and social fabric, isn't it? It's something that's yeah. very important to maintain. And if you can't actually maintain integrity yeah. in your elections, where do you go to from there? What do you do, right? Your democracy, it depends fundamentally on integrity and, and the voting system and the balloting, uh, which I'd never thought of. I thought that was just something that just goes with the you know, that that would never be, <clears throat> that would never be manipulated, but, but it is. So, and once that happens, uh, where do the people who love freedom, where do they go? Uh, at that point, I just don't know what the answer is. Um, I'm assuming that if it gets bad enough, this country, we're just going to see a tremendous exodus from the U.S. <clears throat> and they're going to go to places like Latin America and the Far East, which mm. seem like, um, they have the, the greatest, and Eastern Europe, actually. I mean, mm. places like Poland, Hungary, uh, Croatia, Romania seem to have uh, a, a, a greater protections for individual liberty than... than I interviewed uh, New Zealand's Hungarian ambassador here um, a few uh, weeks back, and it was yeah. fascinating. I yeah. had to say to Jolt, I said, oh, I'm packing my bags. <laughs> I know. Have you ever been to Budapest? No, I haven't. But that's why I asked about Javier Millet, because I'm spending five weeks in um, Argentina and Uruguay, because okay. Uruguay is the quiet little achiever yes. in right. South America. And right. I um, just, we're looking at that as a potential option for um, uh -huh. for retirement, yeah, yeah. bouncing around, perhaps, yeah. Jeffrey. Yeah, and that is a, uh, a Portuguese-speaking country, where. Am I right? Uh, no, Spanish, but they've got a sort of a Uruguay. very weird accented dialect, the Uruguayans, yeah. But they're a little financial haven for the Brazilians in the north and the Argentinians in the south who always have a certain level of uh, disruption within their financial environments. Okay. So, yeah, should be interesting. But, you know, uh, so Mille has a chance to create a real <clears throat> haven of freedom, you know, in that country. Maybe he has a chance. Um, we'll see. I mean, but I would hate for it's amazing how bad had the things had to get for people to turn to somebody like me. Like, um, but I don't know. I, I, I've, I'm friends with many of his advisors. I've not had any personal contact with him, but uh, um, he, let's just say he, if he's sincere, which I assume he is, the challenges are immense. Mm. Um, another, another th thing that I'm, I mean, I've I'm I'm wild for Mexico. I think it's a, a fantastic country. Salvador is also clicking along very nicely. Um, one of the strange play, players out there, Nicaragua. You know, Nicaragua is one of five states in the world that didn't lock down during COVID. Mm. My brother's going there for Christmas, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so a great place. Let's, let's talk a little bit just before we go around free speech in the media, because Brownstone 
I know for me, came out like a beacon from this absolute dumpster mm. fire, which was yeah. censorship and media bias. And right. I see that Tucker Carlson has just announced that he's about to start his own network. This mm-hmm. station was created for very similar reasons because we needed to have a parallel structure to get speech sure. out there because speech was being either compelled or completely censored. Where right. are you seeing the alternative sources of information and media going? Well, I'm forward? so grateful that they even exist. I don't think there was any intention on the part of the sort of ruling class censors that things like Substack and uh, would exist here. For that matter, that Elon Musk would buy X by Twitter and turn it into a free speech platform. So they still exist, but we're under fire every day. <clears throat> I um, I had an event cancel. I used this event software called Eventbrite, which is the most popular event software in the US. Well, I had a, an event scheduled for January of my Brownstone Supper Club. They just canceled it. They just said, no, you can't do that. And deleted the event and refunded all the tickets. Left me. So I had to create a native platform on our own website, like overnight, just so I could have freedom to meet with people and hear a different point of view. Unbelievable. And other things keep happening. Like there's this other company called Media Matters that has been hounding me since we were founded with with phone calls and emails about fact-checking on this, fact-checking on that, and wanting to rate us. And they're kind of powerful. They, if, um, if you comply with what they want, then they give you a good rating. Then other people like Bing subscribes to Media Matters to rank their search results and stuff like that. Well, I found out two days ago that Media Matters is is funded in part by the U.S. State Department. Okay, so it's a government tool. They just outsource their censorship to a third party, called it Media Matters, and they're harassing us. So we're facing this stuff every Mm. single day. It's political laundering, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And, And it's supposed to be, you know, it's funny you talk about how you don't have a constitution uh and a lot of a lot of foreign people think the us is lucky because we do but all this stuff is in violation of the first amendment and and all you can do is litigate it but that litigation is now probably three to five years uh away from from completion it hasn't even gone to trial yet so in the meantime the government has a free hand and they're tightening controls all the time my friend naomi wolf's a website called Daily Cloud just got deleted from Facebook. This this is every day. Yeah, I know. I know. I know when I spoke to her, she, uh, and, and I think she mentions it in her book too, when she found Brownstone, I think yeah. for her it was finally like a yeah. relief because yeah. she literally saw her entire ideological and political sort of foundation burn down in front of her oh, almost yeah. overnight. Yeah. She often says this. She says, you know, that all of our institutions have collapsed. So it's up to us to create new ones, and Brownstone is part of that. But I tell you, we, we're spending more and more time trying to unplug from third parties that can cancel us just to survive. Mm. Not yeah, easy. And then we have to depend on, we don't use any advertising, uh, which is good, um, but we have to depend on donors. You know, yeah, and, that's exactly and, how we operate here, uh, funded by the people for the people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and way. it is, and it is tough too when people are in, you know, the the squeeze is on. So the so when you're asking 
um, our members like we do, you know, f- to support us with subscriptions, you want to make sure that what you're able to provide for them is wonderful content, which you have done for me this morning beautifully. Oh, so awesome, I do that. appreciate that so much. So last, I know we've, I mean, it made people, listen, it's Christmas, Jeffrey. We have to give yes. them some, some something cheerful and a little bit hopeful. What yeah. are some of the things that do still give you joy at this time of year? These days I'm reading a lot of history and finding out that not all of history is that which I've experienced, which I lived in the in the salad days, the happiest years of the 20th century. That's when I grew up uh, from the 80s onwards, you know, everything was right. Um, so I'm digging back through history and realizing, yeah, you know, life life is a struggle, uh, full of poverty and, and violence and, and suffering. And we need to, the way you get out of that is through personal strength. And, and that means something different for everybody. But but these are the times to, f- to figure out what that looks like in your own life. Spiritual strength, physical strength, health, um, good, strong friendships and communities. Um, we're in a stage of having to rebuild, uh, rebuild everything that we lost. We can do it, but it's going to require us to do something. We can't just be consumers of the good life. We have to be producers of it. <clears throat> and if we all... We all th- throw ourselves into that. I think uh, we do have hope, but let's not be naive. You know, this is a crisis of our lives, and it's going to require all of our efforts. Resilience and courage is needed yeah. now more than ever. That's right, Je- Jeffrey A. Tucker. Thank you very much for joining me this morning from the Brownstone Institute. If our listeners want to connect with Brownstone, how do they do that? Um, we have about twenty. Um, pieces of real estate on all social media. But I'm, of course, a fan of Elon Musk's um, X platform and and our and our uh, feed there is about 50,000 people now following it. So that's good. We're doing fine. So you can find us there or on brownstone.org and you're welcome to sign up for our emails. That is wonderful. Thank you very much and have a Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Thank you and same to you. All the Thank best. You. Don't disappear, everybody. More great content still here to come, including some more of Busky's Christmas classics. So strap in for that here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Good morning, you are with Counterculture here with Marie, and as we do this time every week, and for the final time for 2023, where is it gone? Marty Gibson, how are you? Oh, Marie, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Oh, uh, pretty good. Like, you know, <laughs> we both just said to us, what did you just say to me? I feel like we're coasting over the finish line and we're running out of gas. We're, we're out of gas. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. What a little a bit. Year. But, you know, we're still committed to bringing you a great show. We are, and we've done a lot of reading, and and I also just said to you I was so excited to go to the local Four Square where I get my newspapers to tell them that I won't need any newspapers until the 10th of February. I was very excited by this. So I'm giving myself uh, some time off, but boy, you know what? They don't disappoint. Let's start with the question of the ferry, shall we? Because there's some Uh, good rich fodder there. It seemed to be all about the ferries this weekend across all newspapers and So what's now been happening in the last week, as many of you will know, is full credit to Chris Luxon and the team, the coalition team. They are committed at getting as much as they possibly can over the line, hitting the ground running before they break up for Christmas. Credit where credit's due. They said they were going to do it. They are doing it. They're sitting until late at night. And there have been things being pulled left, right and centre. And one of those things was the massive ferry project, upgrade project, 
project and oh my lord uh, not quite as much as the smoking rollback but it was pretty darn close if it could have been called, uh, if it had been called uh, Safe Crossing or uh, Fair Ferry Services Act or something like that, it would have. They, they hadn't quite given it a snazzy name. Nah. But boy, the usual suspects were all out, up in arms, extremely upset about the state of the ferries. Uh, Vernon Small, I thought, was probably the most histrionic of, of all of them. Would you agree? The other thing I noticed was on the same page as Vernon Small, the editor of the Sunday Star Times, Tracy Watkins correctly said there is a golden rule that guides politicians after a change of government. Nobody is listening to what the lot who have just been thrown out have to say. And then we've got Vernon Small, journalist and former advisor to Labour Minister David Parker, pontificating on uh, killing IREX off, that's to do with the ferry, was a politically easy call. Finance Minister Nicola Willis and her colleagues are determined to paint the previous government as fiscally irresponsible and incapable of delivering on key promises. Well, here's the thing. I think Squealer painted that all by himself. I don't think he needed any help from Nicola Willis, just quietly. Yeah. So why they still have these apologists for that profligate spending and waste and, you know, a government that's been pretty comprehensively voted out, I don't know, while in the same breath the editor can say, you know, no one's interested in hearing what they've got to say. No, indeed. What indeed. else did he say? I did, well, I, I did he, he sort of said, one source close to the project said Kiwi Rail at one stage wanted to build wharves that could withstand a ferry collision at full speed, which seems a vanishingly unlikely event in Wellington and Picton Harbours. I did agree to revise its plans for something cheaper without much enthusiasm at a previous government's request, but that was wiped out by more cost rises. So there was plenty of reasons to frown on Kiwi Rail's plan, but the decision to suddenly and unequivocally pull the plug fell short on a number of counts, not least its reception in the affected areas from local government, businesses and workers. He's very, very upset that they pulled the plug. Now, I read Tracy Watkins' article. I read this one from Vernon Small. There was, I mean, every single paper had... This, oh my gosh, this fairy thing is dreadful. Um, and then they, they were doing the whole, there was the cartoon, I think it was Emerson, and Nicola Willis talked about comparing why do we need a Ferrari to get across the Cook Strait when a Toyota Corolla will do, and then they had all the cartoons about that. And then what I finally did was read actually the article that I should have started with which was in the Weekend Herald, which was Stephen Joyce. Stephen. He explains everything. So Stephen Joyce, castles made of sand come tumbling down. It's enough to make you cry. As someone who had the opportunity to help with building some significant infrastructure in broadband, roading and rail during the term of key English governments, watching what has happened since to this country has been truly soul-destroying. Billions of dollars have been frittered away and so much time and opportunity has been wasted. Our reputation for building things is in the toilet. We've gone from being a place that could procure some decent kit at a reasonable price to a story of churning plans, blown budgets, constant restructuring and an appalling lack of delivery, all in just six years. Stephen was putting it all out on the table for the end of the year, wasn't he? Yeah. Again, that's the danger of having 
politicians and journalists. It's an unholy alliance of the enumerate. You know, they're really not good with numbers. A journalist who's uh, good with numbers is a rarity. Mm, very rare. And of course, you know, every, people have short memories. You know, they forget that he actually created and built and sold one of the largest media empires in this country. So uh, he's very good with numbers. Now, this is where the fairies come in. He goes on. Then there are revelations about the state of Kiwi Rail's Inter Island Ferry Replacement Program. How could any government preside over such a slow-moving train wreck for so long? Ooh, do tell, Stephen. The ferry decision was the wrong one from the start. As Finance Minister in 2017, I clearly recall being advised that rail-enabled ferries would be big, expensive mistakes in this day and age. All over the world, they've been retired and virtually nobody was building new ones. Mm. I mean, you know, before that as well, I mean, I don't read the whole article, but and I always wondered what the Auditor General had to say about, you know, especially like I was hearing rumours about just the way they were spraying cash in, in a way that wasn't befitting how much someone has to work to pay the tax for it mm. or pay back the loan that they paid it with. The Auditor General's report on the $15 billion New Zealand upgrade and shovel-ready programs was scathing. It now also transpires that the Treasury derided the most recent transport spending plans in the run-up to the election as unfunded and undeliverable. And, uh, uh, you know, again, it, I always say again, don't I? 2024, it's one of my news resolutions. I'm going to say again, Les. When you put young people in charge of things. There's been a, a systematic devaluing of wisdom in our society, and we're worse off for it. And as you get older, you do realize what some of these hoary old badgers like Wayne Brown, you know, they do bring an animal cunning and experience to the table, and it's worth something. Mm. Well, and we've uh, had let's a university put it this way. 6% of New Zealanders felt that that cunning was certainly worth it in Winston Peters. Six plus, as it turns out, because Six his numbers have gone up. But this is the thing about the fairies. It wasn't until I read this Joyce article that I realised the difference between this new ferry upgrade and what was proposed before. None of this rail-on ferry had been mentioned that I had seen anywhere else. I was like, oh, yeah. well, this is new. And he actually clarifies it even further saying the only fiscally responsible move was roll-on, roll-off theories, which is what we have right now, which do a fine job shifting freight and people between islands and continents all around the world. With most freight now in containers, getting from shore to ship and ship to shore is simple and easy. In 2017, it made no sense for New Zealand to be the last country in the world building ferries with train tracks on them. However, the Ardern government knew better, as they claimed in so many areas. I mean, we just heard that with them time and time again. It was either a captain's call or here in New Zealand, we will do things differently. Yeah. We've got the benefit, actually, of um, of not knowing anything. So it makes it possible for my narcissism to uh, use very sparse information to make um, very, very significant decisions that affect all New Zealanders with um, very little view to their consequences. Exactly. We could literally read the whole article. It's that freaking good. But he then just sort of 
sort of outlined why it became how it became. I mean, you had, they decided to do things differently. They they decided to use a format of ferry that was outmoded and outdated. They turn up at Kiwi Rail and say, this is what we want to do. And we're going to underwrite the entire project for you. Fill your boots. Yeah. So and it's no Kiwi surprise. They filled their boots. Yeah. And, and I, oh, you know, one of the things that I hope is another recurrent theme that, uh, that I think everyone should bear in mind is you can get angry at the narcissistic student Marxist politicians, but really someone wants them to be there borrowing all that money and achieving nothing with them. In, in, in that basic Cubono test, you know, it suits some people that New Zealand has got an extra $100 billion of debt and nothing to show for it. it suits them just fine. Mm. The people who print the money are fine with that. And, you know, it's the same with unbalanced transgender people. It's it's not their fault. It's just they've been picked up as a useful tool to batter other people with. Narcissistic young Maori radicals. They're going to do what they're going to do. If, if some people are given a license to hate, they're not going to be responsible with it mm. any more than Squealer was no. responsible with a credit card. No. And also the absolute fixation that kids have been taught to have on all those things. Mm. And if you uh, draw them out about it, their um, knowledge of it doesn't really extend to the scientific particularly, just, well, this is the right thing to do, and I'm a good person, so I want to do the right thing. Mm. I believe the right thing. I believe um, the right yeah. thing, and I like to spit out all my bumper stickers that tells me that I'm virtuous, and so yeah. that's who I am, yeah. I mean, Stephen Joyce, you know, without wanting to dwell on uh, – the last government too much. I think we're all pretty happy to put it behind us, but we're going to be living with the consequences of that decision-making process, the captain's calls and so on. And his reflection was that the problems, you know, other Labour governments have had a reputation for big spending, but they haven't been this bad. I think it comes down to four things. So he has, I won't read them all, but first, Ardern and co. wanted to be transformative. They didn't have well-developed plans, but they knew they didn't want to do ordinary things. So they announced stuff that they hadn't really studied. Uh, second, they believed they had a mandate to spend money, as a Marxist student politician does when given a credit card, particularly as a result of the pandemic, which, as, as I've discussed before, dear listeners, is, uh, was the possum crossing the road and Driving off the road down the cliff and into the river was the COVID response. Yes, he, he ends that point with rainbows and unicorns for everyone. Third, they had no idea how to execute and no willingness to trust the private sector in any way to execute and make trade-offs for them. And that comes back to that understanding that you get as you get older, that some of these crusty old buggers actually know a thing or two. And when you have to make things and do things after a while, you realize that things are a bit more nuanced than you, you think they are when you're still in your messianic phase in your late teens and early 20s where so many of these student politicians get trapped and sort of stay there like insects in amber. And fourth, they were obsessed with restructuring and centralizing everything, often for no rhyme or reason beyond leaving their mark. They were obsessive about their legacy rather than just doing things that worked for the people who put them into office. Narcissism. 
It's the following paragraph that I love. And so we've wasted so much time and so much money. Just think what roads, pipes and hospitals we could have built with the money that slipped through the government's fingers over the wasted six years. As I say, soul-destroying. Destroying is a strong word, Stephen, but I, I understand what you're saying. Mm. And, you know, Nicola Willis, bless her, she's got a hard road. And the difficulty, of course, is people will expect results. And the reality of it is, is that it's going to take them at least a term, I think, to put out the fire and all the spot fires that will continue to rise from the and, previous. And during that time, they're going to have the 80% of New Zealand journalists who identify as left or hard left berating them while they're trying to uh, keep the country running with $50 billion less in the first term, because that's what Robbo was borrowing to keep the whole rainbows and unicorns supply going. Mm. You noticed and I noticed the media suddenly discovered a lot of that stuff. Oh, there, God. there was actual journalism. Yeah, yeah, it's starting to creep back. It is, yeah, and, John, and in the same uh, edition, so the Weekend Herald, John Weeks did a piece saying, "How bad is the New Zealand co um, economy really?" Was, that was surprisingly hard hitting, wasn't it? It was, and it just was data. Stop yeah. it! The data. It was yeah. the data. New Zealand shrinking economy in the third quarter and the likelihood of recession has caused some alarm and sparks the blame game. Finance Minister Nicola Willis said she inherited a toxic trifecta of high interest rates, lingering high inflation, and the job and business insecurity of the recession. Look, I mean, I'm not deeply intertwined into the finance market, but I, I do, you know, run and partially own a retail and manufacturing business with the day job. And so, you know, one needs to keep sort of abreast of where things are at in terms of inflation and the mood and what this consumer mm. confidence and all those sorts of things are. And it was really hilarious last week when that number came out. Some of them were saying, oh, it could be 0.2, there could actually be growth. And others were saying, well, actually, no, it might, might be negative 0.1 or 0.2. And of course, it was it shrunk the GDP. Nine. Yeah, the GDP number. Stats New Zealand had the New, New Zealand economy shrank by 0.3% in the three months ending to September per capita. And there was even a smaller slice of the pie to go around with GDP per person shrinking by 0.9%. Honestly, I just, if you talk to anybody that interfaces in the real world, out in the community, they could have told you that. Yeah. They really need to start rather than, and, and this is a, another recurrent theme over the last nine months, we've got to just ask questions because supplying data just doesn't really get you anywhere because it's not for a lack of data that people aren't confronting the facts. I think you have to kind of get them saying, well, okay, if the vaccines are safe and effective, for example, and the government has data showing health outcomes by vaccine status, and they promised they'd release it and they've refused to do so, why is that? That's all you need. That's a very valid question. And and so, you know, with all, all of the Maori leaders talking about the governments, you know, <laughs> you know, wanting to take the treaty out of, you know, destroy the treaty or whatever they say, however they characterise asking questions about Easter Island statue Geoffrey Palmer and his principles of the treaty that he said were just window dressing. 
they'd need to start saying, how come you guys are not more interested in the horrendous failure of Māori students in the uh, education system? And why did you not, why did you not say, make a peep when Labour on their first day in office can charter schools which were actually showing signs of turning it around for the Māori and Pacifica students who attended? How come? That says a lot. It's like, you know, when they must remember what bill it was that it repealed, because it wasn't the anti-smacking bill. But you know how you could tell that the anti-smacking bill wasn't actually to stop children being assaulted in New Zealand, but rather was a, a Marxist crowbar to open families so the government would have access to them. There were no ads on TV after that was done that showed parents how you deal with oppositional, especially oppositional children without smacking them. Like if you were really worried about that, that's what you do. They didn't do it. Yeah, those little things like that. Well, there's just the sacred anger, as you call it, is still continuing. And I see, I look at the repealing of the smoke-free legislation in this. To me, I'm a non-smoker. I do not like smoking. I've never liked smoking. I've never had a cigarette. I would avoid places with second-hand smoke. It's not my jam. But the thing is, is that the repealing and the reducing of the nicotine in the, in the plan that they had in that smoke-free legislation, my concern was is it's a slippery slope. And you need to recognise a slippery slope where you see one. We had that during the COVID measures and we had a good dose of fear to force a lot of people not to recognise it. And it's very, very easy to go, oh, yes, I'm going to go down that toboggan because it looks good because I quite enjoy a good, you know, a good ride. And when you enjoy it and it's something that you like, or you agree with, it's easy to go, of course, this is a a good thing. This is going to save lives. This is going to be good for Māori Pacifica. We must do this. But you actually need to step back and look at the principle. And it's the principle that concerns me because the minute you legislate something like reducing the nicotine in cigarettes, then reducing the places that you can sell it, and then eventually banning it, what's then not to say that they're going to decide to do that, say, with alcohol and sugar? and meat, all these other things that we take for granted for argument's sake. And if you're going to play devil's advocate and say, oh, yes, but it's important for the health. Well, then if you're going to apply that metric to cigarettes, you should be applying that metric to alcohol. Or actually, let's have a look at all the over-the-counter drugs you should be doing. Hmm, what is actually the one food item that's actually causing just as much or more damage within our health system as the effects of smoking currently? Hmm, sugar. You know, there's a million and one things that you can apply it to, but the where do you also get self-responsibility and personal choice? That's the thing I find with that smoke-free legislation is that, as you said, it opens the door, it creates the crack to actually then let a whole bunch of other legislation in. And before you know it, your lives are completely encaptured and you do not have self-determination over anything. Especially as uh, I'm sure you caught the ad that BNZ uh, had done for someone to administer central bank digital currencies for them. Is this the job ad? Yeah. Stop it. I did hear I did hear a waft about it. Oh, Tell I mean, me it, more. It's, it's all there. I mean, again, you know, we, again, they always talk about conspiracy theories. You don't need theories. <laughs> you can see the job ads and you can see the working papers from the Reserve Bank that just absolutely have a great deal of enthusiasm for the idea of currency that the government could keep an absolute track on what everyone's spending. And maybe if you're Justin Trudeau, you can stop. You can freeze people's bank accounts if they're 
supporting something you don't like. If well, the last few years has taught us anything, it's that we probably should stop laughing at these personality disordered people who've somehow gotten to the top of media and politics and, and start understanding the existential threat that they pose to us. Yeah, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Yes, yeah, indeed. One of the places I noticed journalism this week, which sort of, again, talks about this insanity of, of these cluster B-type personalities, I stumbled across an article from the spin-off. So from December 13, mm. why Auckland Museum pulled the pin on hosting a hit Harry Potter exhibition. Now, this story has totally flown under the radar. Mm. Totally flown under the radar. Now, the Harry Potter exhibition, which is the Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts and the Wonders of Nature tour, has been a smash hit exhibition tour across the world. Absolute smash hit. Credit where credit is due, Duncan Grieve has done essentially just a timeline article. Again, the facts. They got OIAs, they got the data. And the Cliff Notes version essentially is that the discussion was had around bringing this to Auckland in March of 2024 after the exhibition had just been in Melbourne. Now, bearing in mind, just being in Melbourne. It's one thing I can tell you about Melbourne is it's woker than Auckland. So now the problem being, of course, for our little friends up at Auckland, a a very small number of people up at Auckland Museum, is that J.K. Rowling is problematic for some people because of her very strong feminist, old school third wave feminist stance. Without sort of hashing into it, I mean, do go and read it because it is a very, very long article. But it just tracks the communications of how an exhibition can get killed by, out of a survey of 500 people, where you've got two responses that are negative, and then eight staff members that are, and I quote, the museum's head of people, Catherine Smith, head of people for normal people is HR, Uh, Catherine Smith representing eight members of the museum's rainbow community, said that the museum will send a message that they do not care about our communities and will do whatever it takes to make money. It goes on to say that this will result in the deterioration of our safe space and what is outlined is barely scratches the surface. So their concern basically is, is that there were eight staff members that didn't want to work an exhibition that they projected would make the museum $151,000, not to mention the 498 people that they surveyed out of 500 that were super excited about this thing coming. And it had absolutely a smashing success in Melbourne, outperforming projections. And they didn't want to bring it here because they wanted to look for another exhibition that more closely aligns with our values. Yeah, it's a bit like when Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes uh, only bought five woke reviewers in to review Dave Chappelle, one of my favourite American comedians, uh, his Netflix special Sticks and Stones, and they all gave it 0%. So that just absolutely triggered demand to see it and they opened it up to regular people and they just on principle gave it a hundred percent and it got up to something like 99 percent positive reviews they're running out of time Mm. you know the tide's going out and that's always where authoritarians are most dangerous because they uh they get desperate 
Mm. I mean, I have to say, credit where credit's due to spin off and Duncan Grieve for the piece. I think good on you, Duncan. It was a good piece. It just it was a nice timeline outlining yeah. everything that went on. And I tell you what, if anyone feels like if you've got a Harry Potter lover in your house, and I know that when my kids would have been of a certain age, they would have loved to have seen that. Even now, actually, I love Harry Potter. I've read all the books multiple times. Have you? It, I have. It's just, look, it's just wonderful escapism. It's it really, it, and you've just gone and, I mean, joy eaters, the dementors. You're just dementors mm. sucking the joy out of all of this. So if you feel a wee letter coming on across the summer, why don't you write to Auckland Museum and just tell them what a dick move that was? Because I think it's a dick move. You know, as I said, credit where credit's due. Check it out in the spin-off, 13 December. Everything is laid out there of what we Yeah, on. it's like some of those journalists just getting those first flushes of, of joy, although, you know, in this case, integrity, as, as they're coming off that damaging government money. You know, and they don't experience the heady highs that they did when they were an addict, but now they're sort of getting something that's got a bit more integrity and is ultimately a bit more satisfying and self-reinforcing. Well, you know what impresses me with this too, is the spin-off is actually would be one of the first publications that would actually have, you know, if that was written with the usual lens that I would expect to see from them, it would be anti-trans this, and it would have been lifting up and elevating Auckland Museum for their decision, for pushing away the infidel of J.K. Rowling, whereas this wasn't. It was just, this is what happened, here's the facts, these are the OIAs, these are the communications, make up your own mind. Yeah. Oh, my well, God, journalism, Marty. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, you know, I'm domestic. I've said it a number of times. The door opening a crack demands that we embrace the maximum amount of personal responsibility and understand that what got us into this problem was having disdain for politics that meant we were destined to be governed by our inferiors, as uh, Plato or Socrates said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to get interested. We've got to, you, you're sending your kids to school. You're thinking it's like it was when you were at school. It's not. Mm-hmm. Go and have a look at stuff. Take an interest in things because we've all taken our eye off the ball with disastrous consequences. And, you know, we kind of like we slid down a, a, an ice wall and we've just got snagged up on something. Like we've stopped falling, but we've got a long way to get mm. back out of danger. So for you this year, what has probably been the defining story? Oh, gosh. It's uh, really tough to think about. I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's all a, a bit of a blur of mis- and disinformation. I can't think of one story that, uh, that sums it all up. But I think, by and large, if I were going to look back and find one, it would be some of the stories that were denigrating Winston Peters and people who had doubts about the narrative. It would probably be more a cartoon which showed Act being chased by a tinfoil hat wearing blowfly that was labelled anti-vaxxer. And there's a hangover from that in Claire Trevitt's column where she gives the Politician of the Year award to Winston Peters. There will no doubt be those horrified by the choice those at whom Winston Peters takes aim and those who abhor his party's policies, the environmentalists, a fair swathe of Māori, other politicians, many media colleagues, those who aren't conspiracy theorists, and probably act leader David Seymour. So those who aren't conspiracy theorists, 
again, Claire, you don't need theories. You just have to read what they want to do that you guys don't report on. Just those two things. The fact that the government has all the data for the health outcomes of people uh, split between whether they're vaxxed and anti-vaxxed and refuse to release it. Mm. Just that. That's not a conspiracy theory. No. That's a fact. She also gets blatantly wrong where the timeline went. So she says here his party was only about 2% in the polls. The ACT Party had managed to snaffle up segments of New Zealand First supporter base. But the tide was turning on Labour well before Ardern stepped down and Peters could sniff the opportunity. He played the long game. It started in November 2022 when he did an interview with the Herald's Audrey Young and specifically ruled out going with Labour. No, Claire Trevor, it didn't start in November 2022. That's only when you noticed. Mm. No, when it started was in February of 2022 where a dapper pinstripe-suited man was the only politician politician, with the exception of our darling Rodney, of course, who actually went down there to view the protests with his own eyes. Mm. That's when it started. Yeah, that that was when it started. I I agree. I concur, Busky. Mm. (laughs) Well, yes! (laughs) It was first necessary step to support among those former New Zealand First supporters who still nursed a grievance over his 2017 decision to side with Labour. I don't argue with that. I have to admit, I certainly wasn't thrilled with that decision. Well, except it wasn't his decision. No, exactly. It was a caucus decision. Exactly. His campaign was different to the usual Peters campaign. The messages he pushed and the way he campaigned, there were the big public meetings, but none of his usual road trips to talk on the street corners and the small audience in retirement villages. He was playing a different audience. It remains unclear how much of the stuff he said is genuinely believed. He hasn't yet backed away from much of it. A fair chunk of it is in the coalition agreement. He managed to win back enough of those peeved off former NZ First voters from Act and National to essentially get across the line. She so missed so much of the point there. I mean, what he did is he actually took the time, he went out to the country. I mean, he probably travelled more than any other politician in the campaign. He hit those areas where he, and this is his gift, this is the gift, I think, of 42 years in politics. He hit those areas that he knew that felt that they were not being listened to. Yeah, and knew they were being lied to. That's a horrible feeling when you know that not only is someone wrong, but they know they're wrong and they're gaslighting you. And so I I think, um, you know, I mean, anytime you step in when you See, someone's in an abusive relationship and you recognize it and give them a hand, say. They do feel tremendous loyalty to you because most people just ignore the signs and go along with things at face value. I've done a few of those, actually. And I think that that was essentially what Winston Peters did. He uh, recognized that New Zealand was in an abusive relationship with its government, said to them, no, you're not crazy. That suits them to make you think you're crazy. Hmm. Of course, I introduced you in the first place, but how was I to know it was going to turn out like this? I didn't know she was such a dick. Yeah. And for me, that was the defining story of the year. 
was how a party for the first time ever that went from 2% in the party vote to the result that they had on election night to form a coalition government with not holding a candidate seat, which has never been done on MMP, and to do it in that space of time. And here's the thing, they didn't cannibalise the vote from national. I mean, the national vote was pretty much static and clear. Trevor even says it in her article. The national vote that was polling at around that time uh, at the end of November 2022 was pretty much what they got on election night. ACT was the one that sort of bounced up and down and, and over the show. But what Winston Peters was able to do was he was able to take the 8% of New Zealand voters in the 2020 election that felt disenfranchised with what was going on, but unfortunately got scattergunned across the political spectrum and all those votes got wasted. And I mean, what, three-odd percent of those were his. So Mm. he was able to take a good chunk of those disenfranchised voters who didn't have any of the problems that they were facing resolved in that 2020 election. In fact, they probably were only amplified in that time. And they were able to be channeled and he was able to convince them, a good chunk of them, look, you may not completely agree with me all of the time, but I'm going to give you a voice. Well, also Christopher Luxon, and for reasons best known to himself, had said, I don't want any votes from anti-vexers. And it's like, oh, well. well, Okay. Okay. That seems an unorthodox approach, but be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, that was the the story of 2023. And I'm not an anti-vexer, but he meant people who uh, had serious questions about mandatory experimental gene therapy. Mm. I spoke to someone today and she was just saying that they were, you know, and these are people that are true blue type national voters. And she said to me today, she said, oh, you know, we are enjoying, she said, Winston racking things up. Yeah. And those numbers, the Curia poll numbers show that actually some people are quite enjoying it, according to them. I've had a nice little bump in the polls since the election, New Zealand first. I think one of the things that has, well, it's really come home to me and I think, you know, other people are realising it as well, you know, from a different angle often, is that people aren't the same. We've had this enduring kind of uh, idea that, that people are all equal, equality, equity, etc. And so 95% of, cl- of scientists agree with the climate change thing, or out of 18,000 uh, doctors in New Zealand, or doctors, medical professionals, possibly, only 250 were members of New Zealand doctors speaking out with science. To assess things in that way is to think that everyone's equal. It turns out that people who are genuinely willing to buck group thought are far rarer than everyone would have liked to have thought. Mm. And there was a great interview, and I'd encourage everyone to check it out, Paul Brennan did with Fergus O'Connor Greenwood, who wrote a book, 180 Degrees, Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe. And he was talking about the different kinds of people involved, particularly in the COVID thing, but just generally. And his thing was, rather than um, slice through each of them, you've got to slice across, and there are kind of, yeah, there are sort of psychos in each camp in some ways. And as I said earlier, we've got to 
got to take those people a bit more seriously because we used to hang them and we don't anymore and they've kind of taken over a bit. Mm. There's almost tacit permission now with the change of government that actually no is okay. And one of the things for me looking forward to 2024 will see whether or not the culture war will rev up or whether or not cancel culture and the ilk will soften because people will feel stronger about going, no, actually, I don't like that. No, I'm sorry. I'm mm. not going to accept that. And I'm not going to take the knee and I'm not going to apologize. And actually, I'm going to stand on my convictions, on my opinion, or I'm going to ask that question because no one else is asking it. Yeah. And don't bat me off with a bumper sticker answer. Yeah, don't don't give me, give me a squirt of squid ink yeah. <laughs> that is calling me racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or Islamophobic. It's a simple mm. question, it whatever is. the question is. And I think, you know, we, we've always got to be careful. And I mean, I have this issue sometimes in um, some of the political panels I do where, where the uh, conversation turns to the Middle East. And, you know, I'm always wary of fishtailing. We've got to make sure we don't overcorrect. Yeah. Definitely. And, and so it's really important that we, as I said, don't see ordinary Māori as uh, the problem. They have got some real problems to do, and we live alongside them. It, it's all of our concern that the infanticide rate is, is super high, their imprisonment rate is high, But and this is maybe where they need to lay this out a bit more articulately, is we, we agree that that's a problem. We just don't think that blaming everyone else for the problem gives you the most agency. Mm. The thing to do in the first instance, as painful as it is, is to go, how is this my fault? Mm. And I've done that. <laughs> I've said it before. You know, I've spent my fair share of time in the fetal position, taking a good hard look at myself for the first time and, and not liking what I see. And then going through the period after that of gradually being more careful in what I say and casting aside things that I realize are unworthy. And there is that feeling that you're bleeding to death and there's going to be nothing left of you at the end of it. And I understand Māori have that feeling, you know, if, if they give us give up their haka, you know, you know that, that's such a core part of them. But, you know, you can substitute patus for, for hose and... And I just remember, you know, the voice that Paul Māori that really spoke clearly on this issue was Alan Duff in the 90s. Yeah. And his solution for that was books and homes and books and schools, books and Māori homes, because mm. he saw that education was their way out. He saw that lifting those literacy numbers was going to actually help give them the best chance to beat those statistics, whether it be going to prison or abuse or the like. There are those voices out there for Māori. Karina Shields would be one. The Landy sisters mm. would be others. I mean, they're there. And I'm really proud that here on Reality Check Radio, we give them a voice because they're largely largely being ignored. Actually, we really need to talk to Alan Duff, don't we? Yeah, I don't know where he is these days. Yeah, no. they're necessarily a bit contrarian. Mm. By the time they get to speak in public, they've been attacked a fair bit. And so they come across as surly and people think, oh, well, you know, he's just an angry guy who hates Māori. Mm. When really, you know, it's so important that they say, hey, no, I really want to, I want them to have better outcomes. And if I, I've read 
a couple of his books, Māori, The Crisis and the Challenge, is particularly worth reading. It's a really thoughtful read. Mm. It's that difference between individualism and being a school of kahawai, which is what so many Māori, sort of Tapati Māori politicians seem to want to have Māori be. Yes, indeed. Actually, I've just suddenly thought Pem would probably know where he is, I would have thought. Yeah. Education contemporary. Hey, we've got some really lovely feedback. Oh, well, let's have that. Let's Push have us across feedback. the line. Yeah. Push us across the line. This first one is Young Māori MP, activist, but at 21, what experience or knowledge does she have? Good reason for minimum age and experience limits for MPs. She can't offer something she hasn't learned. As for the party, racist by design and Māori seats also racist by definition. Small course in democracy needed. Oh, sorry, Māori culture doesn't do democracy. That was from the text machine. Marie, good to hear Matt Robson. Did you hear the interview I did with Matt Robson? Yeah, I did. Awesome. Yeah. In a previous life, Marie, I mean, to tell you this, I used to manage the startup of a quarry in the Auckland environment, and one of the neighbours was Matt Robson. Oh, the And I used to meet with his wife, Petronella. And Petronella was the head of a uh, group called Ellerslie Mount Wellington Residents Opposed to Quarrying. So that was a good uh, meeting to have on a Saturday morning when I was pretty hungover. So you weren't invited over for tea and scones then? Well, I think I did a pretty good job, and I think that I uh, put a human face on, on you know, and I was con- I understood that, you know, it was a bit stressful having me and a 75-ton digger ripping basalt out with a license to set off explosives 30 yeah. metres from her back fence. I can yeah. understand why, you know. But, you get a bit sparky about that. You know, Auckland did need uh, nine tonnes of aggregate per man, woman, and child, so. Oh, what can you, you do, Petronella? What can you do? So this one's from Mark. Hey, Marie, good to hear Matt Robson takes me back to when I was in the alliance, when socialism wasn't doctrinaire Marxist and authoritarian. Great reminder, Mark. You yeah, didn't well, actually pu- pull him too much on how Marxist he was, did you? No, I didn't. He did actually say that he was quite socialist. But what was yeah. really interesting, though, is that he was very critical of some of the causes that those the new breed, are very, Mm. very passionate about. And it was just a very, very interesting conversation. So, no, I I was quite happy to let it run and uh, have people make up. Yeah, he's from that Chris Trotter school of uh, gentleman socialists, isn't he? He is very much so. Yeah, um, And I've said to Bonnie, and I did mention it uh, to him, I'd love to have him for political panel. I think he would be great. Yeah, I think he'd be awesome. Okay, Marie and Marty, love you guys. God help us. My 67-year-old friend came round today to see me and tell me I'd disrespected her by not answering her telegram post. And she's unjabbed. Anonymous. I think this is in terms of people just wanting instant responses and even within our own community, we can be frustrated. Uh, This one from, hi, I'm from Canada. I've always disliked the forced language agenda. All it does is divide a people and now it's happening again. You're absolutely right. I've now put the brakes on and refused to learn another word. Have a great blessed day. And that was from Bonnie. I think we've got to overcome that and think it's it's up to... It's it's about reclaiming our own authenticity with the language. And I think we do need to, it's going to be a bit bumpy for a bit. But I think once things settle down, hopefully we can reclaim it and get some balance back. Oh, kia ora, kia ora. 
Yeah, this is from JP. I listen to RCR and the platform, and it's nice to have a home in the Twilight Zone. Marie and Marty, you're my favourite segment of the week, and that's from JP. Oh. Thanks, JP. Thanks, uh, my favourite version of the national anthem is Dennis Marsh. Billy T. James and When a Child is Born Rocks too, And, of course, uh, the RSA Have You Signed In and Levin is pretty good as well. Now, I actually looked up that. Have you seen that? The no. RSA Have You Signed In? It's hilarious. I'll send you the link. It's really funny. This one's from Libby. Hi, Marie. Just enjoying and being pushed out of my comfort zone by listening to your interview with Matt Robson. Holy heck, I wish you'd interviewed him prior to the election as his comments about Winston Peters freaked me out. He was a gentleman on your show calling Peters out on horrible racist comments from the past that I just can't now stomach. I voted for New Zealand First this time, but for the first time, and on the back of the co-review and therapeutics bill, despite always being negative about Peters in the past, I thought that maybe I'd been manipulated by the media in the past, so I was willing to put my feelings aside. But now, I can only hope that people, i.e. Peters, can actually change and that the COVID times and age has made Peters change his attitude. Fine wines improve with age, so surely a statesman can too. Fingers crossed. Life is so confusing now. You do try to do the right thing politically, but really maybe my anarchist friends are right. It's all just a scam. Much love and long-time listener Libby. One thing I will say to you, Libby, none of them are perfect and they're all scorpions. Mm. So I think the key is, as you and you said it here, for you it was the COVID review and the therapeutics bill. And um, we know that the therapeutics Bill is something that he's been passionate about. He's been pushing that legislation back since 2005. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to pick and choose, don't we, and and, uh, vote in order to get to the things that are important to us. Whoever you vote for, government still wins. Exactly. Yeah, it's like like casinos, isn't it? The house Mm. always wins. This is from Shirley. I only caught part of the conversation this morning about Māori activism. We are inundated with comments from the media about the unfair treatment of Māori, especially regarding health. Is this a beat-up? I don't know if genetics make Māori more prone to illness and early death, but it seems to me education, diet, and self-responsibility might have a lot to do with it. Love your program. I, I think you'd be right there. I think you would be right. Not turning up for appointments has a bit to do with it. But, yeah, the education thing. You know, the, the fact that leaders are willing to bleat on about the justice system being racist, the health system being racist, and they're not really, really disgusted with the poor performance of the education system is very telling. Mm, indeed. And we can't uh, finish a session of feedback without something from our friend from Mike. Mike but- and Libby. Yeah, the lovely Mike. Uh, Hi, Marie and Marty. I don't know really how to thank both of you for all you've done for me since I started listening to RCR. Anyone who makes me reflect and gives me a new perspective deserves very high praise. My wife would have wanted to hug you both because she would have thought I would never change and just be a grumpy old bastard for the Uh, rest of my days. He lost his wife. Yes, he lost his wife earlier in the year. Ah. Mm. I'll say that, sorry, I'm interrupting your letter there, Busky, more Mike, but this is the the first year of, of Reality Check Radio, so it's by it's the first time I'd really done something like this on a regular basis, and your letters and other people's letters of encouragement really, really did help build up that confidence to just keep doing what we were doing. You know, so so thanks so much for, for those letters of encouragement. The critical ones too, you know, thought about those and did some self-reflection w- with those. But yeah, thanks, Mike. And, and here's to a better t- 2024 for you, buddy. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. He's had a tough year. He said, for the rest of my days, but I'll be listening to your reason, thought and common sense ideas. I now have a new and very much better attitude. Heather, my wife, will be dancing up there, celebrating with what you've done for everybody in RCR land. Have a Merry Christmas and awesome New Year, but most of all, rejoice with family and friends and return to us rested and strong. We will miss you until you return. And that's from Mike. Well, Mike, we will miss you too. I'll see if I can write some columns, Mike. There you go. Keep an eye on the columns. And then also too, we had some feedback asking about the Harry Potter. So I, I had actually already dug that article out. So I was quite pleased that I was able to bring that one to yeah. you as well. So thank you for the feedback. And uh, 2057 is the text number, of course, at inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Even though we're not going to be back until the new year, you can still send your feedback in. And actually, ideas. For 2024, things or directions that you think you'd like us to cover. I mean, if you like what we do, let us know. If you want us to cover more things in different areas, less politics, more finance or whatever it may be, um, let us know. Let us know because, I mean, Marty and I kind of do this a bit by instinct and feel, but we're more than happy to to be guided by you. It's horrifying how little planning uh, goes into it. We do read everything. We do read it. We so do read a lot. You don't have to. <laughs> heading into 2024 and, and the break so of course we're back our first show back put this in your calendar people our first show back will be valentine's day just for you bringing the love in 2024 so that will be the first day back february 14 what is the one thing you're going to be most looking forward to over the break martin not consuming media Same. Yeah. R- really uh, you know, i'm interested generally and you know there, there may be a project in in the pipeline to this end, I'm far less interested in talking about what is happening than I am talking about what needs to happen. You've got to bear in mind that fear is a weapon that's been used against us and and, and is fed off. So if you can reduce the amount of fear you're feeling and put your best foot forward and be your best person, use that Confucian adage that I'm so fond of, if you look into your own heart and find nothing wrong there, what is there to worry about? What is there to fear? So that's my little parting Christmas present. There you go. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. God bless. There you go. Mine is much more simple. Get sand between your toes and sun on your face and love in your heart. And Chardonnay in your guts. Well, that will be me. Hey, look! I want to thank you for we've had a, we've had a blast this year, you and I. Yeah, awesome! Hey, thanks fun. for uh, thanks for yeah, getting my sleeve caught in the machinery. I know, and forcing you to do this at the same time every week. Yeah, well, it's, it's really it has given my year off a whole uh, different level of meaning. So thanks for that, Maria. And as I said, you've done an incredible job this year pulling oh, the stuff buddy. together. And- Oh, and I look forward to it. We're going to bring you more of this in 2024. So as I said before, 2057 is the text month number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. And don't disappear. It's still more Buskies Christmas bangers yet to come before we disappear for 2023. Thanks, Marty. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Counterculture for this wild ride across 2023. All of this has been made possible by the courage and sheer genius of Claire, Alia and Libby, RCR's founders, who took a massive risk on a platform to try and reach more people and share the truth, simply not being shared elsewhere. 
They have corralled and conjoled us. They've inspired us. And along with your financial support together, I believe we've started to affect real change in New Zealand in 2023, something we could all be so, so proud of. If you feel like giving us a little Christmas love, I won't lie, a radio station is a very hungry beast to feed, and every single dollar makes a difference. RCR is proud to be funded by the people for the people. Just go to realitycheck.radio and click on the donate button. And don't forget to let us know what you think or what you'd like to see in 2024. Text us to 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you've got nothing shaking on New Year's Eve, we have a very special New Year's Eve party hosted by our very own Tobias Tahi starting at six. See the year out with some awesome sounds and all of us will be checking in to say hi. Merry Christmas and thank you from me. And I'd also like to thank my incredible team behind the scenes here in Counterculture. The lovely Liz from our inbox, brilliant Bex who keeps my life ship shape and squared away, and Reese the Ripper who makes me sound so much better than what I actually am. I'll be back in the new year to bring you more great content, conversation, all here on Counterculture. Time to finish the last show with the most requested Christmas song from my time in radio in the 90s. It was a song that didn't actually resonate in many other nations, but here in New Zealand, a Christmas wouldn't be complete without it. It's the Royal Guardsman with Snoopy's Christmas on the one and only Reality Check Radio. Merry Christmas, everyone. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.